the free city of Kohor. Costs nothing. You can have it for nothing. No, it's one of the nine. The farthest east, probably the most magical. At one point, perhaps the most wealthiest. Maybe not so much anymore, but pretty wealthy. Famed for their goods and their proximity to the old region of Sarnor and the Dothraki Sea, currently. Famed for their goods and their bads. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. All right. Bad point. Good point. Bad. (laughs) So we'll be dealing with their entire history, as much of it as we can, what we know, their connections to Valyria, and the current story, what characters are featured, who's Kohorik, who's been to Kohor, all that fun stuff, and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to another episode. Sean, you've got a Nirvana shirt that has Owen Wilson on the front instead of Kurt, Kurt Cobain. Cobain. What's what the deal about? with that? <laughs> Is this one of those, uh, what's that thing where everyone has like a shared false memory? <laughs> you didn't know Owen Wilson was the lead singer in Nirvana? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that is news to me. Hmm. It bears striking resemblance. Well, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I am not drinking coffee today. I've got tomato juice in my giant stormtrooper cup. These things go well mm. together. <laughs> Stormtroopers and tomato juice. Tomato yeah. juice. Tomato. <laughs> I have a Red Bull. I have dragon Whoa. fruit Red Bull oh. mixed with the protein berry, naked drink, and a sparkling ice mm. bread. Right on. It's a little tart, a little tart, more tart than my usual mix. Anyway. Prob- probably super sweet to most That's people. That's pretty but- insulting. It's a I- little tart. I'm going to call it a little slut. I would have a stronger <laughs> description of that, more negative. Not of tarts, <laughs> of that drink. <laughs> Check out goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's Allie with one L. Nina got a good question about the She-Wolves of Winterfell, somewhat related to our discussions last week about the marriages of Serena and Sansa and Edric and Brandon and Barthagan and all of them and trying to make some sense of that. So good post. Check it out. Nina has some good thoughts on what might have been going on there, even though we can't be too sure. This episode was voted on by patrons next week. Patrons have chosen House Celtigar, beating out some other island houses that we floated. If this episode ends and you want to stay immersed, we've got you covered with suggestions for topics related to this one. Quite a few relate to this one. As often happens when we do a more world-building heavy topic, they always connect here and there to other things. There's lots of little threads, both slender and thick, that connect to other topics. That's at the end, like I said. So is the answer to this trivia question. The Black Goat is the patron deity of Kohor. But one character in A Song of Ice and Fire was jokingly referred to as a black goat. Whom do I refer? The first mention of Kohor is here. Quote. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them forever. They had wandered since then, from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Kohor and Volantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. Her brother would not allow it. The usurper's hired knives were close behind them, he insisted, though Danny had never seen one. So they could have just stayed, because as we found out, indeed, the reason she'd never seen one was because there weren't any. Of course, if you've seen the hired knives, it might be 
in big trouble if they're close enough to be seen. <laughs> but anyway, so it's, it comes up first, obviously, as a, a part of Danny's backstory, particularly her flight from Westeros after her family loses the throne. In a lot of stories, these places might only be names, just that, nothing more. Places that the author invented to fill out this piece of backstory. But since this is a Song of Ice and Fire, all of these places are well-developed. Several of them we've been to, lots of detail, lots of history. Six of the nine free cities were listed there. All those cities listed were all free cities. It's kind of an odd route. Bravos to Mir, Mir to Tyrosh. On to Cohor, that's way the heck up there. And then back to Volantis, which is all the way back south. Maybe, you know, Danny was only five. Maybe she doesn't have the order quite right. But also George had drawn the map a little differently early on. So Cohor might have been closer. <laughs> also, you got to do what you got to do when you're on the run. That's true. Maybe they're like, well, let's run really far. Like it might, it does. It's not like it doesn't make sense. It's just, I question it because the map was different back then. If George actually intended it. But it's still, you're right. It totally worked still. Makes sense to go somewhere. Whatever the opportunity they had or whatever yeah. danger they sensed or rumor they were working off. Oh, yeah. And going from Cohort to Volantis is a lot easier than the other way around because you go down river and you now go down the coin onto the Rhoyne all the way. You just float all the way down and you, you can just take an inner tube all the way from... Coin with the Q. Yeah, coin, coin with the Q all the way mm-hmm. to Volantis. Yeah. <laughs> so that's six of the nine free cities not mentioned with Pentos, which is, of course, where she is when she's having this quote, and Lorath and Norvas are not mentioned. She may, may, maybe never went to either of those. Now, of, of those nine, Kohor is probably the most magical. I say probably because, you know, magic isn't always out in the front and public, so there's stuff happening behind closed doors and you can't be sure, but Kohor is the most, like, obvious stuff going on anyway. This might be a little contrary or, or less exciting than what most people want, but I tend to always want to kind of downplay magical and fantastic element. And my thought here is even if Cohort is the most magical, what does that mean? It still isn't necessarily that magical, right? Like if you had 10 people and nine of them have $1 and one of them has $2 or he's the richest one, (laughs) twice as rich as anyone else, but it's still only $2, you know? Double. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. You're right. It's it's, it's relative. I do expect there is probably enough there to be noteworthy probably more beneath the surface and what's seen. And Dan only has to see one real magic thing to, or a person yeah. only has to see one real magic thing to change your world perspective. But I still, I don't think you go to that city and like everyone's flying around on magic carpets and everyone's like drinking potions of immortality. <laughs> it's probably yeah. just, a, yeah. Totally, yeah. I don't, I don't see it that way. More either. than anywhere else, but still not that much. And this is a good time to bring this point up then in, in response to that or to add on to what you're saying. Cohort is the farthest of the free cities away, farthest east, which isn't necessarily the farthest by travel, but it's perhaps the most remote. Maybe Lorath would be. So the farther you get from Westeros, the bigger the rumor mill is going to be, the less actual the, information they have. The more, more links and the whisper chain. Yes, to, the game of telephone. Yeah, the more time to be exaggerated, the more difficult to verify the rumors. Yes. Or Spanish, you can talk about Cohort and no one's going to be like, I've been to Cohort, that's not true. You know, like no one's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's not as likely to happen. Nina writes, I can only imagine how Daenerys saw Cohort during however long she and Viserys stayed there. She never thinks about it in detail. Might have been her first experience with a widespread prevalent practice of magic or just the first time she saw any magic at all. To the extent that Cohort really is a haven for sorcery and blood magic. And it, it is to some extent, though, we don't know to what level. Like Sean's correct to 
question just how much there is. But clearly there's some, especially with the continuing practice of Valyrian steel, not making, but trying to figure out <laughs> what they did and, and remixing it. So Danny may have been exposed to that somewhat, or that she may have just been too young to have really understood anything. Like when you're a five or seven year old, distinguishing magic between just cool stuff is, well, you're not very good at that, are you, at that age? <laughs> and Viserys isn't probably going to be the best teacher. I mean, he's the guy telling them they're telling her there's hired knives following them when there aren't. He does seem more likely to play it up. He, you know, to keep her uncertain of reality, you know. He might have... Gives him more control over her. He might have said things like, you know, we came from a family that used to be part of the society that ruled all this. You know, that's maybe maybe more along the lines of things he's going to point out. We also actually see, not Kohor specifically, but the forest of Kohor in her third chapter. So we get a little more right away, almost right away. Quote, For half a moon, they rode through the forest of Kohor, where the leaves made a golden canopy high above them, and the trunks of the trees were as wide as city gates. There were great elk in that wood, and spotted tigers, and lemurs with silver fur and huge purple eyes, but all fled before the approach of the Kalasar, and Danny got no glimpse of them. Yeah, I mean, 100,000 people. Yeah, Yeah, the animals would run away from that. (laughs) That's how roughly how big Grogu's Kalasar was. So even though she's riding in the front, yeah, the animals feel the ground rumbling, like <laughs> with all that coming, like, I think we should get the heck out of here. It must have been very wondrous to Danny going through the forest of Kohor. This is someone who had lived in cities most of her life and fled the red door as we just saw and wanted to go back there. So not only was this forest particularly interesting and deep and, and huge, it might be the biggest forest in the known world. So it isn't just big and fancy and interesting. It's particularly massive. And there's things in there that she would never see anywhere else. Like it says, trunks of trees as wide as city gates. I mean, that's like redwoods. You know, like that's the closest equivalent on on Earth. And redwoods really are that big. I mean, there's redwoods you can drive a car through. I don't mean you can, like, theoretically. I mean, you literally can. Like, they have it carved out and you can drive a car through it. (laughs) Like, Roads flow through the the center of the trees, not through the forest of trees, but through a individual tree. So if you've never been to the Redwood Forest in California, it's, or I mean, it's not all in California, I believe. I believe it spans outside of California, but whatever. It's super cool. It's a bucket list thing, I suggest. If it's not on your bucket list, maybe you should add it. It's really just, it's hard to Those trees are so big and, and so old. They have soil up. Like a hundred feet in the air, they're, they're you know grass grows on their limbs. Yeah, you know? there's animals that live up there that have never touched the ground <laughs> and never will. They have no reason to. They're like, well, we live up here. So there's almost certainly that sort of fauna and scenario going on in the forest of Kohor too. Yeah, the branches have been entangling and twining for so long, as Sean said, that they actually have a, a they actually can for, hold a soil layer or multiple. So yeah, it's just kind of hard to fathom <laughs> that forests can be like that, but it's true. So. The huge golden canopy that Danny's seeing here is is sort of an extension of that. It's where where it thins out, I suppose. There's thicker areas where you wouldn't have any light coming through. So that's pretty pretty amazing. And we're guessing that George was kind of thinking of the Redwood Forest. He's probably been there, and if not, he's seen pictures. And well, George likes to go big, and well, those are the biggest trees we <laughs> in the real world. So, <laughs> yep, that's the inspiration, probably. Nina agrees, guessing that he was probably thinking of the Redwoods. 
Here's the first. Oh yeah, where Ashea grew up. That's right. So Ashea has some familiarity there. And I was with you when I saw them for the first time, I believe. Yeah, I guess I don't know if that was your first time, but you were sure with me when you saw them. That was my only time. Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) yeah, that was pretty cool. That was part of my missing last week's episode. As I was out in California, and we went to a it was a state park, not a national park that had some redwood trees there. They were younger ones, so they weren't as massive. But you see the tree trunks of some massive ones that had been chopped down, and they were like, I don't know. Three of me wide, you know. I could like, <laughs> you know, was, and I, I doubt those were even like the biggest ones or anything. Those are pinkwood trees. When you're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first mention, other first mention here, are co-subject, the patron deity of Kohor. Not exactly as popular elsewhere, but quote: "Is this your own scheme?" He gasped out at Varys. "Are you in league with Littlefinger?" That seemed to amuse the eunuch. I would sooner wed the Black Goat of Kohor. Littlefinger is the second most devious man in the Seven Kingdoms. (laughs) That's such a great quote. He's like, so you're calling yourself number one, aren't you, (laughs) Varys? Yes, yes, I am. And I I deserve it, don't I? Hmm. Yeah, probably you do. (laughs) Probably you do. And I wonder about Varys because this is not a casual mention necessarily. He emanates, emanates, originates from... Essos, so he would know more about the Black Goat than your average Westerosi, and he may have even been there. He's probably been to Kohor. He was in a traveling mummers troop, after all, and they would go to the large cities, and Kohor is one of them. So, and Kohor is fairly wealthy, so it seems like it would be a very likely target for a traveling group of performers. He was in that group for a while, so it's very likely he's been there. Now, we've seen Mir and Lys and Tyrosh as quote, sister cities of each other and daughters. And they're sometimes called, the tri- they were the triarchy for a while there. So they're often embroiled or allied or something. Lorath, Norvos, and Kohor are something of an equivalent there. They're not as connected. They don't fight each other as often as Mir, Lys, and Tyrosh. But they're, they have a lot of things in common. So as we discussed the founding and geography of Kohor, we, we can talk about things like this. All three of those were founded by religious dissidents, but under different circumstances, under different times. Here's what the world of Ice and Fire says of it now. Even more mysterious than Norvos and Lorath is their sinister sister, the free city of Kohor, easternmost of all the daughters of Valyria. Kohor stands on the River Coin on the western edge of the vast, dark, primordial forest to which she gives her name, the greatest wood in all of Essos. As he's looked at me. Like, <laughs> the greatest I, wood in all of Essos. Mm. As guys are lucky that that quote ended there. Yeah, I don't know if, if I would have be- kept it together when I saw Aziz. Like the way his eyes just like looked at me. He's fucking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I said it though. I you didn't mess it. it up. You did it. You did it. <laughs> I did it. I, I did the greatest wood in all of Essos. <laughs> So, so like it said, easternmost of the free cities, it, it almost wasn't. There is a, a city called Asaria, which was a Valyrian colony that never really got going because the doom happened and then the Dothraki destroyed it. So having, had more time passed, Bohor may not have been considered the easternmost of the free cities. And that's assuming Asaria even became a free city, which maybe it never would have been. It may have been more like a Mantaris or one of these cities that Mantari's this, Mantari's that. When are we going to hear about Womantari? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and that which is ruled by Valyria, but wasn't considered one of the free cities. It was direct, direct ruled, I suppose. So anyway, 
Kohor sits on the Coin River. I kind of wonder which name came first. Probably the Coin, and Kohor was named after that, which is a little odd because the Coin is a Roinar name. But so Kohor it could just be a coincidence. They both start with Q. <laughs> but, coincidence with the Q? Yes, coincidence with a coincidence. coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> and the Coin, of course, has that name. It's a tributary of the Roin. Norvas sits on the Noin. Mir sits on the Moin. And Pentos sits on the Poin. Yeah. And Volantis sits on the. No, you made that I up. I made most of those <laughs> up. The, Roin, the Noin is real and the Coin is real. A different name for the Coin is the Darkling Daughter. That's a, oh, like sorry. a nickname for that area. The Dark Wash is uh, another tributary that feeds into the Coin, which then feeds into the Roin, the main branch, that is. So throughout all the worship of the river and the long-standing naming and civilization that lived along it, there have been a variety of nicknames and ways to refer to different regions of it. And I wonder if Kohor coexisted with the Roinar. It may not have, (laughs) though it may have. If it did, then they would have traded with the city of Arnoy, which is the green marble city, one one of the ruins, of course. And that would be interesting. Or maybe they just sort of took over that region after Arnoy was destroyed. That would make sense as well. We do not know how old Kohor is. It's not like Lorath where it was founded by religious dissidents, the followers of Boash or whoever, and then that cult died out long before current times. And the Valyrian expansion to include it was an add-on rather than it was founded as part of Valyria. Whereas Kohor seems to have been like a mine, a lumber colony that at some point was taken over by followers of the Black Goat and then became Kohor. So its origins are a bit humble, but it, the point or one of the main points takeaways here is that it was Valyrian almost from the get-go, as soon as it was recognized as a, a major spot. They would also be trading with Norvas and Lorath, of course, because those are the sister cities that are close by. Probably a good amount of trade with Ib. Nina suggests that a lot of people and products from Ib probably make their way to Kohor, but less so than some of the other places because it's not on the coast. It's not a port. It's by the forest of Kohor. It's a river port, but that river doesn't extend into the northern seas. So Ib, despite its proximity, goods might go through another spot before getting to Kohor. Now, Ibn would also make a very good market for Kohor's timber exports. But Kohor mostly is shipping their lumber downriver because that's easy. You float the logs, then the current just takes them down to wherever they need to go, whether that's to all the way to Volantis, perhaps, or one of the steps along the way, one of the smaller cities, one of the unmarked villages. There's probably lumber camps and miniature towns that are focused on just cutting trees and processing them for castles and homes and whatever, tools. Of course, the Sarnori cities were there, in addition to the cities of the Roin. This we're more sure of, that there was trade going back and forth. Nina says, Kohor is sort of like the Western associate equivalent of Karth. And maybe that's why their names are a little similar, just from an authorial perspective. Just as Karth sits on the border between the more well-known and well-documented part of the associate continent, at least it's as far as Westerosi documentation goes, 
and less so more mysterious areas like E.T. Lang and the Shadowlands. Cohort straddles the more urbanized portion of Western Essos, right? Western Essos is where there's a lot more cities and less open spaces. More, it's also more familiar. And it's farther away from the Dothraki Sea. But the but Kohor is right there. The forest is what divides it from the Dothraki Sea. If it wasn't for that, Kohor might not be there anymore. More on that later. I want to point out another primary use of lumber, in addition to you know building carts and tools and houses and stuff, but, but maybe the main thing. Because once you build the house, that's it. You don't need more wood. But firewood, that's sure. what it gets used Good for. Good point, yeah. Now in cart, a carts and carth, I mean, in Kohor are spelled with a Q, right? Q-A-R-T? <laughs> yeah. Let's also take a quote here that discusses more about its position in the region and what that does for it financially. Kohor is also famed as the gateway to the east, where trading caravans bound for Vase Dothrak and the fabled lands beyond the bones are outfitted and provisioned before heading into the gloom of the forest the desolation that was Sarnor, and the vastness of the Dothraki Sea. Conversely, caravans returning from the east come first to Kohor to refresh themselves after the crossing and sell and trade the treasures they have acquired. This trade has helped to make Kohor one of the richest of the free cities and surely the most exotic, though it is said the city was 10 times richer still before the destruction of Sarnor with its gleaming alabaster cities, shining lakes, and fertile farms. Yeah, this is super important. This is a a city that sits in between a lot of major trade routes from different regions. Base Dothrak itself has a bustling market. Remember Danny visiting there and seeing things from all over, seeing people from as far as Ashai and the Shadowlands, in addition to people from the free cities. And that's Base Dothrak, not Kohor, which would have a lot more of that sort of thing. And you can just imagine back in the day when Sarnor was there, all, like it says, the gleaming alabaster cities, they were trading with all those cities. And boy, that must have gotten them quite a lot of bang. The trees they could have sold to <laughs> the Sarnori cities and the goods that, they, that passed through, the taxes they levied, the food they sold to people going back and forth as caravans buy huge amounts of food and water and exchange goods from far away. And information, yeah, knowledge would point. have traveled through there. You know, people would have learned little tips of the trade or whatever and all sorts of different aspects of life and news of the world and itself would be have value. At, I don't know about books and such too. That's a great point, Sean. Like that is something that they do at the market of base Dothrak. The example that we just used is George like, let me go see if there's some letters, you know? And yeah. of course he's sort of, doing a little chicanery there. But still, the mm-hmm. point is he's able to do that there. He's able to use that spot to communicate. And even though it's all the way back in Westeros that he's trying to communicate with. In the show, they actually made a cohort that that Jorah sent his message from about Danny's pregnancy. Like as soon as he's told she's pregnant, he's like, I got to ride to cohort. I'll meet you guys later. And it's like, hello. Like as soon as he finds out <laughs> she's pregnant, he runs <laughs> Not quite as subtle. But... Also, like you said, information, not just news, but techniques, like how to do things, like how to make higher quality goods. Kohor is known for the best swords and armor in the world that we know of potentially, not counting Valyrian steel, but even they work with Valyrian steel. I'm talking about, you know, regular steel. 
But also they have fancy like wooden goods and lots of other things. And a lot of that they probably learned through contact with these other nations because those other nations were there before them. So they're unlikely to have been the originators of all these techniques. Some of them perhaps, sure. But a lot of it they would have learned from their neighbors and some of them from faraway neighbors. Like you said, Sean, these, these things connect to each other. That caravan from base Dothrak would maybe go back to Kohor and then to Bravos or something like that. But it might continue through the Bone Mountains all the way to like Yt or Jogos Nye or who knows, Trader Town or Bone Town. Yeah, Bone Town. Go to Bone Town. Bone Town or bust. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said uh, shortly before, Asaria was to the east. That was called Base Kadok by the Dothraki when they destroyed it, the City of Corpses. Next along the road, if you're traveling east, would have been Sarnath itself, City of the Tall Towers. So Kohor was located near the capital, the largest, well, maybe not the capital, may not be the right word, but close enough. It's the largest city in the Sarnori Empire or kingdom, whatever you want to call it. You wonder, referring back to Arnoi, Arnoi was nearby and they were known for their green marble. You wonder about that source. Where does this green marble come from? And does Kohor have access to it now? Because it would have been, you know, Arnoi isn't that far downriver from where Kohor is now. So whatever that source was, probably some of these mountains that are just a little bit west of the forest of Kohor is a decent guess, I would think. But also just the idea of coloring strikes me because the Kohoric are the only people who know how to add color to metal without just painting it. That's what Tabo Mott tells Tywin, or maybe Ned, he says that, you know, everyone else just paints it, but we, Kohoric, know how to add color to the metal itself. So that's why that came up. I'm wondering if maybe this coloration technique thing is actually something that they acquired from the Roinar. Who knows? Just a pretty random guess, but there's a little bit of a regional connection there. As it says there, Kohor might have been the richest of the nine for a while. It says maybe 10 times richer than... It used to be, which is, maybe that's an exaggeration, but even if it was only five times richer, that's very rich. And if it was richer than Volantis, that's a pretty big deal because Volantis was extremely wealthy, being so close to Valyria and all that. So Kohor is, if you're thinking of rating the different free cities amongst different categories like wealth, magic, or size of their military, well, they wouldn't be very do very well on that third category, size of military. But in terms of wealth and magic, yeah, they'd be near the top, if not the top. And you don't need as big a military to defend yourself as you do to go out and conquer other people. So if they're just trying to That's true. keep themselves secure, that they probably their military seems fine enough for that. Yeah, and they have the money to you know pay people off. They, they bribe the Dothraki calls sometimes. They can hire sellswords, like a lot of the free cities do. Most of the free cities don't have standing armies, but some of them have standing navies. Not really sure what Kohor has as far as a standing navy. They probably have river boats because river piracy is a thing, a big thing, as we saw when Tyrion and, and company went down the Rhine. Balanced by them being so close to the former cities of Sarnor is that they're not as close to being to the other free cities. They're perhaps, as I said, maybe not as remote as Lorath in some ways, but in some ways they are more remote because Lorath is much more reachable by ship. Norvas is the closest to Kohor, but Norvas is equally close to Kohor as it is to Lorath, Bravos, and Pentos. So that is, Norvas is a little bit of, a little bit of a hub thing going on, being so close to the other ones. Meanwhile, Kohor has a, more of a distant mystery vibe going for it. 
That mystery is absolutely enhanced by the forest. We had the quote about Danny passing through, but here's the quote from The World of Ice and Fire. The woods that surround Kohor are the principal source of the city's wealth. The earliest settlement here was a lumber camp, the city's histories reveal. And even to this day, it is as hunters and foresters, the Kohoric are most famed. The shining cities and sprawling towns of the lower Rhoyne hunger for wood, and their own forests have long ago been depleted, cut down, and plowed under for fields and farms. Huge barges, heavy with timber, depart the docks of Kohor every day for the long voyage down the coin to Dagger Lake and the markets of Selhoris, Balasar, Voluntaris, and Old Volantis. The forest of Kohor also yields up furs and pelts of all kinds, many rare and fine and highly prized, as well as silver, tin, and amber. The vast forest has never been fully explored, according to the maps and scrolls of the Citadel, and it likely conceals many mysteries and wonders at its heart. I had to not look at you when you said <laughs> lower roin hunger for wood. I saw you slightly like, start to chuckle. Tara Incognita in the chat said, your mom hungers for wood. <laughs> and I also have struggled to keep it together there. So Kohor is on the western edge of the forest. It's the farthest east of the free cities, but it's on the western edge of the massive forest of Kohor. It's probably better known than we think, and as far as the Citadel thinks. But still, when it says it's never fully explored, I totally believe that. I mean, there's forests in the world today that have never been fully explored. So the idea that it wouldn't be fully explored back in a lower tech time in a place like this, yeah, that is easy to accept. Nina guesses that it's about the same size as the Haunted Forest north of the Wall, which is also really huge, but bigger than the Wolfswood. So yeah, really, really big, but impossible to say for certain. That's part of the idea of it not being fully explored. It, mapping its borders, it, that isn't going to be precise. That's going to be true for the other ones. But we did see that it took at least the direction Danny was walking, which was riding, which is from west to east, took two weeks to cross to go in that direction. North-south would take even longer, though there's a lot less reason to do that, as far as I know. So what appears to have happened back in the day, there was a lumber camp there. It was doing its thing. It was surely profitable because it was told this is a very profitable industry. And then in Valyria, as we discussed, there was a religious dissidence of different types at different times. And this happens from time to time because Valyria was so open with religion. They allowed all religions to practice. And some religions don't like other religions. So they actually don't like that. Some religions were like, yay, we can practice and do our thing and they can do theirs and we'll all get along. But not everyone was happy with that. Like the followers of Valor, for example, they're not so happy with other religions. <laughs> and the Black Goat followers are one of those religions. And it's kind of not hard to see why they left anyway. The Black Goat seems to be a deity of the woods. So it's kind of like why they picked this spot might not have been ideal to be in Valyria in the first place. Like forest god volcanoes. That's not, <laughs> you know, maybe go to the forest might make a little more sense for them. So you can kind of see it might not have just been about wanting to practice their religion and persecute other religions, find a place where they were the only one. 
this also seems to be sort of like a, a home for them, like a, an appropriate place to be given their values and their beliefs. Their values, such as they are. I put that in quotes. <laughs> the followers of the Black Goat are a nasty bunch from what we can tell. We wonder if there's any Ephikevron in this area. Probably not. The Ephikevron are farther east, and that's the kingdom of the Ephikevron. Is Ifikevron, is that like the, the Essos Children of the Forest? Yeah. Yeah. Remember that, right? That's right. That's it. So it's possible that the forests used to connect to this area, these two areas, you know, in some ancient time, but maybe they just were never in this forest. But maybe they were because, like, you know, Children of the Forest used to apparently be in all the forests in Westeros. Perhaps that was true here. Given the sheer size of this forest, you wouldn't necessarily think they'd have to flee. You know, they could still probably be hiding in the deeper parts of this forest, but it's pure guesswork. And it's not called the Kingdom of the Ephikevron, which is to the east. So that maybe hints that they aren't in this forest. But we really couldn't say for sure. No one probably could say for sure, even in world. By the way, I think George could have had all his books set in that forest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah. if it takes two weeks to cross through it on horse. That's a <laughs> massive amount of territory with a huge potential for all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I could tell other stories here. The world building here is great. It's robust. So as we'll discuss later in the episode, the forest is probably important for the use of magic. It probably relates to it. But as it says distinctly, it is absolutely important for their wealth, for their making good money through the trees and through the flora, other flora and fauna and different things like that. Compare it to the vast unexplored jungles of Sothorius to the forest of Kohor. I, I, I think there's a few comparisons to be made here, especially using magic as a jumping off point. We talked about how the blood magicians of Gagasos would have loved to get their hands on all the variety of species there to toy with and do their genetic manipulation on. I would think that that might be true here. Maybe not quite the level of biodiversity because it's colder, but substantial biodiversity, substantial. I mean, massive. I mean, there'd be like other things like mushrooms and more of things like that that you may not see as much of in Sothorios. Like I'm not enough of a biology guy to know, to list off all the possible differences. But still, we're talking massive ancient for And ancient matters a lot. You got old growth. You've got un things. You've got uh, one of my favorite bands is called The Sword. And they have a line about a wood <laughs> untouched by axes. It's <laughs> never heard the sound of axes. It's so deep. They don't even know what an axe is in those deep forests. So that's, that's cool. I, I think of that. Even though there's all these lumber camps, <laughs> the, the forest is so vast that there's places that have never even heard the sound of an axe. Yeah, along that same line, just thinking about if it takes two weeks to ride a horse through it, like how long would it take to chop a row of trees the, that distance? You know what I mean? <laughs> like it would just... I think maybe literally by the time you did that, new trees would be growing back <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> there would have to be an active effort. So like, I wonder, in fact, there probably is areas that once they're chopped down, that soil is probably pretty fertile and it becomes farmland. It supports the area, like an extra value that ends up coming from the former forest. I believe some of the Valyrian roads connect up there. Yes. You can see them. Yep, they're there. Yep. Yes, so, you can see them. So that's pretty cool. That works out really nicely. And as we've talked about, the idea of Valyrians and their Valyrian roads, they use their dragons. They can clear a path more easily. Yeah, maybe that's how yeah. they blazed a trail through the 
Yeah, forest. it's literally blazed trail. <laughs> and once there's a trail, like you said, Sean, it's so difficult to make. You're not like making a bunch of other ones. You're like, oh, let's just use this one. I mean, <laughs> it's like, why, why go through the effort of making another one? This one, this road already leads to base Dothrak or before it would have led to Sarnath or Asaria or both. Like, yeah, why do we need another road? So there's probably some really, really old trees in there. Nina says, the stoutest tree in the world is on a Montezuma cypress in Mexico with the trunk measuring 30 feet in diameter <laughs> and the roots are 46 feet. But that's not part of a forest. That's kind of a solo-ish tree. You know, I was going to point out that I, there's some parts of this of cohort that remind me of Mexico City. Mexico, You think of Mexico as being kind of this desertous landscape, but Mexico's really big. It's bigger than like Texas and California and the whole Southwest put together. And a large part of the northern part of Mexico is pretty desertous. But guess what? Down where Mexico City is, it's a huge freaking forest and it's surrounded by multiple big lakes. And I think it's got some parallels to, uh, yeah. I didn't realize that the largest tree was in Mexico. And I, I wonder if some of that was inspiring towards too. We'll get to it later, but like the human sacrifice, mm-hmm. the Aztec culture, there's some parallels there. That's a good point. Yeah, there is a lot of sacrifice in Cohor. <laughs> so that's, that's a good point. There was a lot of sacrifice in, among the Mexica, as you say. Amber is a major export from Kohor. It's a major source of wealth. It's treated like a gem in real life. And it's sort of like the blood of trees because amber is fossilized tree resin. When you harm a tree, like if it's gouged, resin flows to that spot and hardens sort of to protect, like a, almost like a scab. Technically, resin in the real world is classified as tree resin that's 40,000 years or older. So it's like the Warhammer rule. If it's 40,000... That's what amber is. Oh, sorry. Yes, amber. My bad. And so if it's been... So if it's under 40,000 years, it's not considered amber yet. (laughs) And tin and silver are also mentioned as being present, which implies the presence of mines. So mining is a real awful endeavor in medieval ancient societies. It's, It's brutal and involves slavery and... Lots of poisoning of the environment, and they're not fully aware of what they're doing. But of course, it also means wealth. Tin is important for making bronze. It's one of the two main ingredients of bronze. You need copper and tin. Silver, obviously, I I need to say very little about the wealth that comes from silver. Mm -hmm. Most of the coins in the world are probably silver. Not our world, but that may have been true at one point. Most of the coins in in the, the world of Essos and Westeros probably are silver. Maybe not. Maybe bronze. Or I don't know. And then, uh, not sure. When you go farther back, both in the real world or in Martin's world, I don't know how much tin was used for containers. Like aluminum has to replaced nowadays, but cans used to be made out of tin, and aluminum has some minor advantages and took over for tin. But yeah. uh, I wonder how often tin was just used for cups or cans or anything of that. So I don't know if they had technology to seal stuff like we do now. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about some features of the city itself. As is true of several of the free cities, they specialize and thrive in part due to specific industries. Quote, The artisans of Kohor are far-famed. Cohort tapestries, woven primarily by the women and children of the city, are just as fine as those woven in mirror, though less costly. Exquisite, if somewhat disturbing, wood carvings can be bought in Kohor's market, and the city's forges have no peer. Tapestries often have metals woven into them. In this case, we would expect silver to be that precious metal, maybe some gold here and there as well, but the silver would be more plentiful and available locally. And when it says the women women and children are making the tapestries, does that 
suggest slave women and slave children, or maybe not? Because certainly that's the case in, in Astapor and Marine. You have specifically this industry is, is slaves. That's one of the ones where Danny hears a case from a former slave owner who's like, well, why are they making all this money off this thing that I taught them? And Danny's like, are you kidding me, bro? <laughs> You're asking me that? <laughs> like, so this is like, you're paying them. So she like punishes him more. But the point isn't that. It's that the example was they were weaving tapestries. They were loom people. It's not loomer, isn't there? Lumineers. Lumineers, which is, there's a lot of skill in that. Tapestries are expensive. And like, like a high-end tapestry made by hand, like a skilled tapestry maker in modern times, working by hand can make like a yard, like a square yard in a month, which is to say, again, that doesn't mean slaves aren't doing it here. But if they are, these are valuable slaves. You know what I mean? So either way, it's a high-end industry. And I suspect part of the reason this city flourished with mercantilism and was never a city all about war or conquest was because, like I said at the beginning, pretty much right away, they were under the protection of the freehold. Like, who's going to mess with Kohor when it's one of a protectorate of Valyria. And a protectorate isn't the right technical term. It's a free city. It's a vassal. Vassal isn't quite the right term either, but whatever. Ally. Yeah, they're under the domain. They're ruled by Valyria just indirectly, which is why they're called the free city. The free city, that term is always so confusing because they use slavery and they weren't yeah. actually free. <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah. An independent city? I wonder if that's a better, you know, yeah. more... In our world, in our understanding, independence is probably more accurate than free. Yeah, that would be, yeah, especially now in the current times, like without Valyria in the picture anymore, independent is pretty accurate. They are pretty independent. Now, th- this, of course, distinguishes them or makes them more similar to some of the other free cities, of course, like Tyrosh and Mir and Pentos. They all have slavery, although Pentos doesn't right now, according to the deal that was forced on them by Bravos, but they want to have slaves. And of course, Bravos was founded by escaped slaves. Tyrosh was founded to be a military outpost at first. So it did have a military bent, a military kind of angle to it right away. Whereas it's kind of evolved into something else now. But it did start that way. Whereas Kohor was never about military. Although it, was about, it has always been about military production because it makes the best swords and armor in the world. Imagine they make a lot of spears too, right? Yeah, spearheads and wood, you're right. metal points and the wood shafts. And great it. point. <laughs> great point, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so Norvos is the most similar, as we said, but not that similar in a lot of ways. The similarities are they were founded by religious dissidents. Religion is still really big today, whereas, for example, Lorath was founded by religious dissidents, but it's no longer a particularly religious spot. It's changed. Norvos and Lorath, I mean, Norvos and cohorts still are like that. They're still very much ruled or semi-ruled by one particular belief system. So we have artisans, especially blacksmiths, but also tapestries and hunters and trappers and amber collectors and silver mines and the magic stuff, which we have yet to fully dive into. But as I've been leading up to here with the discussion of the black goat, let's talk about that. This is what sits atop the city it's its patron deity. And that is very odd and very interesting because it's not what you expect to see at the top of a bustling mercantile city is this really dark, very evil sounding deity that you kind of might have thought would have people would have moved past this and you know, but they haven't. So let's talk about the black goat, starting with this quote, black goat quote. It is known that the bearded priest of Norvos 
regard the Black Coat of Kohar as a demon with an especially vile and treacherous nature. Of course, that's what a lot of religions say about the deities that aren't their own. But I kind of agree with the priests of Norvos. <laughs> it does sound kind of like a demon with especially vile and treacherous nature. For example, Mokoro calls the drowned god a demon. He's like, you're, you know, that's no god. It's a demon. And Bakarin's like, careful what you say, priest. And he's not. Not careful, that is. Yeah. <laughs> and we hear that R'hllor worshippers in Kohor rioted and tried to burn the black goat down. So apparently it's represented by this large flammable <laughs> edifice of some kind. I don't know what. I mean, it's partly part Tried to burn it down. Tried. They did fail. Maybe they're... They did fail. <laughs> and that was recent. That was like Tyrion hears about this. I think it was Tyrion. Anyway, so it happens. This is during A Song of Ice and Fire that this rumor comes up. What was going on there? Nina suggests maybe they were putting the black goat to a spiritual test. Could, you know, because their, their god is the god of fire. So if fire consumed the black goat, it would have maybe proven something to them. It would have been more meaningful to them than perhaps other people, although the worshippers of the Black Goat would have been rightly pissed as well. So it would have meant a lot to them also. But Reloris, you know, they think Reloris is the only god, the only one true god, and, and the Black Goat is just some a demon or just some interloper that doesn't belong in the same tier. You know, if we're doing a tier list of gods, <laughs> Reloris would put Relor on the S tier and the Black Goat's all the way down on the... Sounds very blasphemous. Yeah. On the B tier, I don't know, <laughs> for black goat. I think that, it, I mean, I don't think I'm stretching much here, but I think it's meant in the book, that moment is meant to show that Rulor is kind of rising everywhere. Yeah, good point. But, uh, even in the city. But it's interesting. In a, even in a city where that's it, it, the home religion of something else. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, pretty powerful. Yeah. You're right. I also, I think we'll talk about this more later, but I, I think, the black goat, like R'hllor, there are like two sides to it, right? There's mm-hmm. the light and the dark, right? And I, I almost think the black goat is part, of, like I think the drowned god and the black goat are the same thing. They're death. They're just, you know, different names and different cultures or whatever. And that is yeah. not, not without agreement within the text. I think, I think we have a quote coming up in a minute here that, that suggests that, yes, the black goat is a version of like the stranger or yeah, I mean, the I drowned think, god. Yeah, I think when you talk about the many-faced god, when you talk about the house of black and white, that's where you they talk a lot about the idea of multifaceted gods. Even if that is like true somehow, I feel like if that is true, that the followers of lore are burning the black goat, you're like... Hey, it's not like death doesn't exist. It might even be part of your own religion. You just don't realize it. But if they don't realize it. They have their own agenda or their own, or maybe even if they recognize it is part of their religion, they still don't want to worship it. We should be worshiping something different. Or this, on and on. I can. This actually does bring me to a new thought. Remember that one of the things that the Reloris are expecting is the eternal summer, in which no everyone lives forever. So pushing back against a god of death is mm-hmm. is sort yeah. of symbolic in terms of what their expectation is for this uh, revelation coming true, this, this prediction, this prophecy coming to earth for real. So yeah, that's kind of neat. Like they're, they're, they're anti-death. They're like, no, we're done with you, death. <laughs> we're going to live forever. That's great, right? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Good luck with that. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they've loosened up somewhat because clearly if there's enough followers of R'hllor in cohort have a riot. Yes, they didn't succeed. Maybe it was a smaller number that just the story really traveled. Maybe there was only like a dozen of them. But still, there's perhaps more religious tolerance in cohort than there used to be. And that makes sense given how much the city is, is, is about making money. You know, if you're making money, you gotta, you gotta be loose <laughs> with a lot of these things. You can't allow 
these belief systems to stop the flow of cash, right? That's, that's how it seems like their real God is money. And that sits behind the black goat, perhaps. And over time, as a culture like that gets exposed to more different other cultures and religions and gods and time passes, you know, I, I, I can see it's, it's, it's natural for new religions to come and old ones to wane. Even if they generally maintain control, they might. And especially in a moment like we're witnessing in A Song of Ice and Fire right now, where there's this general rise in magic, this general rise in reward. We're seeing new milestones. We're seeing changing. We're yeah. Seeing, yeah, this is a time of change. We've we've referred to referred to it as like the second age of heroes and things like that. So yeah, you would expect lots of things to change forever, potentially, and, and big changes. As well, I would think that behind that, maybe, yeah, there, so there might be some benefit to keeping the black goat in place for the powers that be in Koho, whoever they are, the richest of the rich, the elite of Kohor, they must see some benefit to it, or at least it's too much for them to push aside. So they either they accept it because getting rid of it would cost them too much or be too risky or something like that. They, they, play, they play nice because there's no, other, no better way or they play nice because it actually benefits them. Maybe they even also understand this is the God of death. It doesn't mean there can't be other gods, but death is still real. We're It's what we worship. They, we can yeah. accept or understand these other gods and religions, but this is still death. He, he still rules over everyone, whatever else you think you want to worship. You know, I can understand him having an open mind about other religions and still worshiping this one. You know. I agree. That makes sense. So the priests apparently wear cowls, which is, you know, that's a pretty standard operating procedure for priests of a dark <laughs> god to wear cowls, right? It's, it's totally in the uniform, right? But I still wonder about like how this came to be, how why it persists, and why people still to this day would join with it. Like, why would you be born into this city and be like, yeah, let's worship that, you know? <laughs> I think that they were tricked because it spelled with a Q. <laughs> <laughs> <I didn't realize. laughs> yeah. Nina suggests that maybe there's been reasons to be thankful to the black coat. Maybe they're the way things have been spun. For example, Perhaps the most basic recent-ish reason would be that maybe they see the black goat having saved the city from the Dothraki. The goat stopped the horses. <laughs> Four-legged animals going to battle. <laughs> and the goat came out ahead. Yeah, so that might be a reason to be, to be thankful. And that fits in with how they worship the black goat. The black goat isn't like a, a deity that they love. It's one that has to be placated daily sacrifices are offered. And it's supposedly they believe that if they don't do this, they'll fall into ruin or the black goat will be un unhappy and punish them. So it kind of makes sense that they would have this sort of Stockholm syndrome relationship with this God that protects them, but also is going to kill them if they don't do what he says. <laughs> it's also like a horse-sized goat, right? It's not a cute little billy goat. It's a giant It's a big goat. monstrous yeah. goat. Yeah. Quote, unquote, goat. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly right. When Arya sees... But Arya gets to the House of Black and White. She sees a whole bunch of deities. And some of them, you kind of got to think about it to see which is, to figure out which is which. But not the black goat, because it says a shaggy black goat the size of an aurochs. Like, <laughs> that one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an aurochs is like six to seven feet tall. We discussed it back in Dunkin' Egg, I think, because of the poaching. Think of aurochs as being kind of like buffalo. Yeah. Right? Hairy buffalo, yeah, furry buffalo. They're giants. So imagine shaggy a, a goat of that size, six or seven feet tall, maybe standing on its hind legs, that demands daily sacrifice. That's scary. <laughs> That's terrifying, <laughs> right? I mean, yikes. So is the worship of the black goat connected to sorcery? Like a lot of religions, 
are so powerful and so long-lasting because they have real power. But that is that is a, it would be a very strong explanation. That is what won Stannis over to Relor and Melisandre. He didn't believe. He's he's like reluctant to accept all this god nonsense. But when he saw Melisandre actually predict the future and actually do other sorceries, he's like, "All right, well, you can't go denying that. That's real. He she really did that. So if this comes from Relor, then that's real power, and I can't just shun or or despise that. That explanation would totally work for me here as a reason why this creepy, strange religion is still ruling or still so powerful after so long. This seems like the kind of thing that would eat itself, that would just destroy itself, almost like Valyria did. <laughs> you know, although Valyria lasted a very long time. But Valyria also had lots of magic to keep itself going. So that, that maybe also works here as an explanation. I've talked about this before sometimes, that once you make a certain sacrifice towards a mission, a goal, an end, or whatever, it's harder to turn back. Mm, like, yeah. once they've already been sacrificing something every day for years, for your life, for generations, whatever, it, it'd be really hard to be like, ah, we shouldn't have been done that. We're not going to do it anymore. You kind of you kind of have to keep going with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Too much has already been yeah. put into it. One bad never mind thing it, happens, you know? At, you know, like a week later after you stop, like, see? <laughs> you know, this is just the beginning. It's going to get worse. Yeah, all bad things happen, you know, because... Because we stopped. There, there's that there. also, but I'm just thinking of the cost already invested. Oh, yeah. You can't admit to yourself that that wasn't worth it. You're right. It's a sunk you cost. You have to keep doing it. Yeah. Here's a direct quote from the kindly man who teaches who's teaching Arya how they sort of envision the black goat there at the House of Black and White. In Kohor, he is the black goat. Nyiti, the Lion of Night. In Westeros, the Stranger. All men must bow to him in the end, no matter if they worship the Seven or the Lord of Light, Moon Mother or the Drowned God or the Great Shepherd. All mankind belongs to him. Else, somewhere in the world would be a folk who live forever. Do you know of any folk who live forever? Mm, well, she doesn't, but speaking of the immortality stuff, that is very relevant in this sense. So I like this idea, this concept that, yeah, these are all just the faces of death and the palace of black and white positions themselves at the top. Like, yeah, we figured it out. We're the smart ones. Those are all just death gods. And ours is the one that actually represents them all. They're just reflections in the lake. You know, we're the, we're the true version. But it makes sense because death gods are prominent because death is a real thing that happens in every culture. It's a fact of life. What is that? That Onion article, world death rate still holding steady at 100%. You know, <laughs> but it's not just a fringe belief. It's not something that only the faceless men claim that the black goat is one of many versions of the death god. Even Tyrion says something similar on the eve of battle. It's Penny, quote, That's the stranger coming, Penny. The black goat, the pale child, him of many faces. Call him what you will. That's death. Mm. Yeah, death rules over Kohor. And in some way, that is kind of absolutist. It's like, well, yeah, we're all going to come face to face with this one day. But why does it have to be a black goat? <laughs> why, <you> know, <laughs> why does it have that specific face on it? You know, I really wonder about that. That's, that's so peculiar. So it must be a pretty widespread belief then. A lot of people around the world see the black goat as a version of the god of death. Perhaps the only one that rules directly over a city. Perhaps not. But you know, arguably, there's some other things that you could say are similar. Like the, the House of Black and White doesn't rule Bravos, so even though they are kind of a death cult, or maybe not kinda. <laughs> maybe they're just a death cult, a different kind of death, death cult, but they don't rule are Bravos. You, 
Are you sure they don't rule Bravos? Ah, they kind of do in they a sense. Maybe do, yeah. they do sort of. They do have a a share of <laughs> of ruling yeah. there in a sense. Certainly, they have a share over the rule of who lives and who dies. That's that's for sure. It demands daily sacrifices, and that's kind of wild. It doesn't seem like that's changed since the doom. Like they must have. They've been demanding daily sacrifices before the freehold fell, and apparently, it's still happening now. Quote. Calves, bullocks, horses, or the animals most often brought before the black goat's altars. But on holy days, condemned criminals go beneath the knives of his crowded priest, of his cowled priests. And in times of danger and crisis, it is written that the high nobles of the city offer up their own children to placate the god that he may defend the city. So honestly, I, I, I don't flinch much at sacrificing animals. I mean, in this context and given in this world, I mean... If you eat animals, eat it's hard to so. be that <laughs> squeamish about a, a, a sacrificing one. But children, oof, that, I mean, I that mean, if you eat children, then it's hard to be too <laughs> squeamish about that either. <laughs> True. If you eat children, this probably doesn't bother you. But yeah. Nina points out the Prince of Pentos bit, which is, you know, they sacrifice the Prince of Pentos whenever the city loses a war or if a crop fails, they sacrifice, yeah, or if a plague happens. So it's kind of aristocratic privilege mingled with sacrifice. It's like, well, the aristocrats have this privilege, but if they don't wield it properly, we get to call for their death. And it's a similar sort of scenario, except that we don't hear about the adults being sacrificed. Here, the, the powerful and cohort have passed that off to their children rather than to the adults. So they're both pretty barbaric. The Pentashi weighs a little better since they're not killing kids, but still pretty bad. And it's a slippery slope, right? What's this, what's a criminal, especially in a city ruled by one particular zealous religion? Like, what counts as a criminal? Like, you could your laws are written by religious groups, and they could easily write the laws to include like blasphemy and things like. I mean, we have that in the real world all the time. So, yeah, yeah. criminals. We're not just talking murderers and, and rapists here. We're talking. Yeah, I know. It's, it's there's a very slippery slope of saying we're deciding based on our morality. <laughs> Yeah, when that morality is the black goat, especially. <laughs> yeah, if that, if that is the morality that we're going on, then yeah, that's yeah, dangerous. A little bit of a tangent, but I, I remember talking about, I wish I could remember what the context was, but talking about that system in Pentos, how it at least there's some sort of like, it's like a motivation for the prince to make sure he's doing a good job. Like even something that's out of his control, like a drought, well, he better start preparing reserve grains in case there's a drought. Otherwise, he's going to get himself killed. But what are the kids supposed to do to prepare themselves to defend the city? You know, like yeah, they're is... pretty out of control and innocent and get punished for it anyways. That's a great point, John. There is more of a rational element to the stick and the carrot and the stick yeah. dichotomy there. The Prince of Pentos has motivation to do things, but the people of Kohar, like, you sacrifice your children because the Dothraki are coming. <laughs> like, what is that going to do? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, how does that motivate you in the future yeah. to be prepared for the Dothraki coming in? Okay, so it sounds crazy, but this is from real life. It's the stories the Romans and the Greeks tell of Carthage speak to exactly this. Their god Baal and or Melkart actually sacrificed the children of nobility when the city was in peril. Of course, this is what the Greeks and the... Romans say the Carthaginians did, and the Romans sacked Carthage and destroyed all their books. So we don't actually know if this is true, but considering there are multiple sources for it, it isn't just the Romans that say it, the Greeks say it too, so it might be true. There's also some pan vibes here because it's a black goat, right? The goat, the black pan was a piper who sometimes 
encourage people to throw off civilization and just go live in the woods and, and be basic and <laughs> just do that stuff. Goats in, in Christianity and Western societies, goats were associated with Satan. But that was, that was propaganda. That was actually not like from ancient times. That was invented as a pushback against other forms of Christianity and other religions. And that, those images persist today. There's still like goat skulls. There's still like metal bands love to show goat skulls. <laughs> it's kind of pushback against that old propaganda from Christianity. So that's, that's probably part of what influenced George here. But an even bigger influence on George was almost certainly H.P. Lovecraft, who we've brought up many times here. There is a one of the great old ones in the H.P. Lovecraft deity list is the black goat with 1,000 young, a hellish cloud-like entity <laughs> who is connected to Astarte and Ishtar and Baal in some myth cycles, which brings it all the way back to the Carthaginian beliefs in Baal and Malpart. So there's multiple paths to get to the same influence pathway here. Pretty cool. Isn't there some God that like he wanted his followers to sacrifice their firstborn son? <laughs> and then I think he ended up sacrificing his own Wasn't son that, too. Yeah, Wasn't didn't, didn't we just God? have, didn't we just pass over <laughs> that holiday recently? <laughs> Wait, isn't this Easter like right now? <laughs> <laughs> Where did George get these crazy ideas of having people <laughs> sacrifice their kids for religion? We didn't choose Easter for, for this on purpose. <laughs> but it happened. Our patrons did. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the Black Goat isn't only worshipped in Kohor. It's just the one place where it's the most prominent, like Ashai. It's worshipped in Ashai, where nothing is forbidden. You know, talk about religious freedom. They certainly have it there in Ashai. Now... They chose the black goat to be their patron deity, their mascot, if you will, when they could have chosen this instead. The little Valyrian quote. Like many northerly forests, it contains elk and deer in great numbers, along with wolves, tree cats, boars of truly monstrous size, spotted bears, and even a species of lemur, a creature known from the Summer Isles and Sothorios, but otherwise rarely seen farther north. These lemurs are said to have silver white fur and purple eyes and are sometimes called little valerians. A preserved example of a lemur from the forest of Kohor can be found stuffed and mounted in the citadel, though so many hands have patted it for luck in their examinations that its fur has long since fallen out. Ugh. Like a beloved stuffed animal. Yeah. <laughs> Are those naturally occurring, these, these lemurs, or this is like a blood magic experiment that actually created animals that could breed? Because most blood magic experiments create sterile creatures, just like in real life when you crossbreed animals like donkeys or mules or whatever, they're usually sterile. So I wonder if this is one of those, because it's kind of an unusual animal, and like real lemurs don't live in forests. Lemurs live in Madagascar, and that's it. Well, that's where they came from. They may be like they've been taken elsewhere. And Madagascar is very warm. It could easily, especially in George's world, be some magical thing. But it's worth noting, it could also be, uh, I can't think of the term, but artificial selectivity, uh, I think. Okay. Like, for example, I think it's off the coast of Japan. There's this crab that looked like the shell of its crab looks just like the face of a samurai. And it's because for 
centuries and centuries, fishermen, when they pulled out crabs that looked like the face of a samurai, they threw it back. And the ones that didn't, they kept them. So eventually they start to, all, all the ones that survive with that DNA, pass on that DNA, and eventually they all just have the face of a samurai in the back. So it could be that selectively, if they were hunting these lemurs, or feeding the lemur. They would hunt the ones that didn't look like valerians and feed the ones that did. Does that make sense? Yes. They, they might have selectively ended up causing them to look more and more valerian That's interesting. So, That's interesting. Yeah. Nina tends to agree that it's a little coincidental that this number one blood magic spot <laughs> that's a valerian outpost just happens to have these unique valerian-looking lemurs <laughs> in the forest nearby. Are they ever sacrificed? We're here, bulls and bears and other things sacrificed. Are they sacrificed the little Valyrians? Yikes. Probably not. They're too Valyrian for that. No, they want to sacrifice lesser beings. Hmm. So apparently lemurs in the real world could used to be as large as a gorilla. They were that, were that big. Which is like, whoa. Yeah, Madagascar's neat because it's really big, but it's an island. So it had like a lot of unique evolutionary branches take off, including lemurs. I think there's like 20 or something different species of lemurs. And of course, you know, it's, I think the really big gorilla type ones have become extinct. Most of them are like, I don't know, Tiny. 10 or 20 pounds or something. Yeah. But some of them are really like, there's one called a mouse lemur. It's three inches long and it weighs like one ounce. Whoa. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> That's cool. There's a wide variety of very specialized lemurs. Madagascar is pretty cool. Lemur, there's another little clue here that the lemurs might be magically oriented here in Wester or in Essos because the word lemur in Latin means ghost or spirit. So these are kind of like the ghosts of Valyria in a sense. They're a remnant. They look like Valyria, which is gone now. You know, the doom, which is a segue to the doom and what happened there and what happened in Cohor. We have a very interesting quote. Cohor had something peculiar happen. Let's hear it. What followed in the sudden vacuum was chaos. Dragon lords had been gathered in Valyria, as was their wont, except for Anar Targaryen, his children, and his dragons, who had fled to Dragonstone, and so escaped the doom. Some accounts claim that a few others survived too. For a time, it is said that some Valyrian archons in Tyrosh and Lys were spared, but that in the immediate political upheaval following the doom, they and their dragons were killed by the citizens of those free cities. The histories of Kohor likewise claim that a visiting dragonlord, Arian, raised forces from the cohort colonists and proclaimed himself the first emperor of Valyria. He flew away on the back of his great dragon with 30,000 men following behind a foot to lay claim to what remained of Valyria and to reestablish the freehold. But neither Emperor Arian nor his host were ever seen again. I like the idea of a ghost army. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> just like all of a sudden, like a man and, the yeah, and like 30,000 men just like show up, <laughs> lost through to the mists of time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, where did they? That's a lot of missing dudes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, okay, like never Orion was never seen again. Sure, fine. But 30,000 people were never seen again. Like, where were the, where is this, where did the bones go? Yeah, they just sank. The yeah, they must have had equipment. They must have had yeah. swords and shields and horses. And yeah, it's, it's wild. Fun events like this kicked off the century of blood. I mean, all sorts of wild stuff happened there, right? And this made the title Free City a bit closer to true as they were no longer ruled by Valyria. Of course, they have this dude claiming to be emperor here, but that 
didn't last very long. So that was a short little episode for them. And of course, they still have slavery and the blood sacrifice. And, and we'll get back to that later. But as we've been saying, the Kohor, not a city of warriors. So these colonists, these people that he raised to be his army, yeah, might not have been the, the best army <laughs> that you've ever seen. So, because they, they're used to hiring mercenaries. And when they were ruled by Valyria, they probably didn't even do that because they were like, they probably didn't have much to worry about in terms of being attacked by outsiders. Like Sarnor wasn't going to attack them. It's their trading partner. Sarnor doesn't want war with Valyria. So certainly these 30-some thousand non-warriors were not enough to intimidate a blasted wasteland into submission. (laughs) I don't even think good warriors could have done that. Nina wonders why he didn't just try to set himself up there. Maybe he would have come back to it, though. Maybe he was going to go to Valyria, and maybe his plan was to return to Kohor. And maybe he did things in Kohor to establish himself before leaving things that still are true now or things that are still in play right now. In other words, like the Valyrian steel secret. How did it get from Valyria to Kohor? Even though they didn't get the whole secret because they don't know how to remake it. Is it things like this? I like maybe Orion was like, all right, Kohor, in exchange for you supporting my candidacy here, I'm going to give you half the secret of Valyrian steel. And when I come back, I'll give you the other half. He never came back. So they didn't get the rest. That might be, that's a little random as a guess. You know, it's, there's not a lot to support this idea, but I feel like Orion couldn't have just given orders and been like, all right, you guys all follow me now. Like he might have tried that because he's a big dragon lord and outranks everyone. But still, he would want to not just tell everyone what to do, he would want to give them some motivation to follow him. He would like some of the rich people of Kohor might have other options and he might want to make sure they were on his side and. He would give them concessions or things of value to make sure they're on his side, especially if he's going to be leaving. He wants to make sure the city's still loyal to him while he's gone. It's obviously a time of great chaos, so he can't just be like, you wait for me, you know, and don't do anything until I come back. Like, Kohor's really far from Valyria. Kind of doubt he just told them, gave them orders and expected them to stand pat, and, and that's that. So, yeah, I do wonder. I stood a little bit on it also, like maybe the 30,000 number was exaggerated. Maybe um, some of those he picked up on the way from other cities, you know. Yeah. Or maybe some of them trailed off along the way. Oh. They, you know, they maybe literally died or starved or got lost or abandoned. Or as the, news the reached them or, that we're marching into a blasted landscape. Like this is not yeah. like once word got to them that we can't actually march there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess... If, I mean, I just, I just, it's like 30,000 people. It's like you picture, like, once you see the first 10,000 people cross into like hell on <laughs> earth, the next 20,000 just turn around. Like, it's just hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like, they all, they, they all just in. keep going. Yeah. Like, I, I can't, like, so I'm like, it makes me think, like, okay, like a bunch of them crossed over and then got infected with those like worms or whatever that like Araya got. Maybe like they all got oh. killed by something that just like spread through the army. You know, like maybe a, mm, right? Maybe a, yeah. a Kalisar got them. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah. Before they yeah, got yeah, there. That's true. You think maybe they would brag about it or talk about it, or there would be some record, that's or there true. would be like yeah, they'd have some yeah. dragon bones, yeah. maybe something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened to that dragon? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, I guess. The I, more, I guess that's. Um, I'm gonna say I now feel that it was illness that ended up killing the whole army off. That they got mm. some magical disease that just like wiped them out. No trace. Even a regular disease. <laughs> or yeah. Water. Yeah, yeah. yeah, bad water, yeah. 
Oh, it's still things that you would think that just one experienced leader would be like, test the water before everyone drinks it. But maybe they did. It was poisonous, and but then there was no other water, and they just all you know died of thirst or starvation. It's even still, where are all the equipment and bodies of these thirty thousand, or if it's exaggerated, fifteen thousand? That's still a lot of people to yeah. be just gone. Especially you know? if they're wearing cohoric armor. That's some good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you want that. Uh, and I, I, okay, I, 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 little, okay, my uh, next theory. Okay, my theory okay. is that they get to the border of Valyria. Okay, like they get to where it starts to look like hellish. Okay, and like a lot of people are like, ah, I think we should turn around, and like maybe they would have, but the worms or some magical disease starts just ripping through them, and they all die, and then the border of Valyria like extends a little bit. You know, and then they're all just pulled into the lava, into like they're, they're, they're just they're just all yeah. burned up. They're all in the lava, you know, secondary aftershock. Yeah, like a secondary or aftershock. A, yeah, like a yeah, something like a that. A tidal wave or something yeah. like wipes them all off the coast or something. Yeah, something like their, that. Yeah, yeah, I think natural disaster, like extending the, you know, like they thought they were not as in danger. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's what I'm. That makes a lot choose. of sense. They aftershocks make sense. Like they would just be the one explosion, and that's it. Because like. Very often when there's an earthquake, there's a secondary or tertiary or quaternary or I'm losing, running out of... Yeah, so it might be here. that someone like does so like digging into under like a mountain and like, not a mountain, but like a pile of rocks. And they're like, oh, there's 30,000 corpses in all their armor. <laughs> Melted like cohorts. I'd be tougher to discover if they're all washed into the ocean, yeah. which, you know, also is an effective, you know, earthquakes and volcanoes can, Although, you know, I'll the, say if the water create tidal waves. If they're mm-hmm. washing the ocean, you might imagine that sometimes, sometimes someone just finds a cool suit of armor on the, on the like something washes ashore and they have a great payday. Yeah. I don't know. Well, one of the thought theory question I have, is it possible that his dragon survived? Aren't there a few dragons out there that are like, I don't know, loners, you know, have uh, mysterious origins or appearances? Is it possible his is one of them? I'm not quite up enough on all the dragon lore. But could his dragon be a dragon? Is it could have survived, but it wouldn't have. It, you know, it would have died a while back, most likely. The doom was more than four hundred years ago, so we've never heard of a dragon being four hundred years old. Two hundred, we've heard of. So it could. It's not like completely out of the question. But maybe that dragon didn't die and then was riderless and just lived its life out in Valyria, or was killed by whatever carved a nine foot long. Uh-huh. Scar and Balerion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it could have been killed by a separate. Like I'm not sure that a natural disaster killed this dragon, but it, maybe it did. Like if it was a secondary aftershock of of substantial size, it could, I mean, dragons were killed by the original Doom. You'd think the aftershocks of the Doom would be pretty substantial, given how substantial the Doom itself was. So later in the Century of Blood, Cohor teamed up with Norvos to defeat Volantis and stop their imperial ambitions because after Emperor Orion failed, the Volantines tried to do something similar and, and position themselves to be the inheritors of the heir to the empire, to quote a recent Star Wars trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and Yanin also wonders if maybe Orion, if he had set himself up a little differently, if he had tried to do like the Targaryens did, where they he had a base that wasn't directly connected to the continent, like Dragonstone, something like that, where he set himself up outside of the former spot and ruled from there. But no, that didn't didn't happen. (laughs) This defeat of the Volantines involved something called fire galleys, which I really hope they called water dragons or river dragons because, you know, (laughs) that's... Seems like something you would do. Like this is a former Valyrian city. Like it hasn't been that long that the dragons were gone. And you know, anything that's breathing fire sort of 
would get nicknamed a dragon. And it would make sense, like I mentioned briefly earlier, it would make sense that they have a lot of river craft in cohort. They obviously don't have deep sea vessels because they have no connection whatsoever to the oceans. Their waterway that leads to the ocean is super far from that. Given how important river travel would be for their economy, and there are a lot of river pirates in the area, well, they have the timber to make the ships, they'd have the economic incentive, there would be, you know, people that maybe aren't in the timber industry. It could be like, hey, I could make a buck being a protector of the industry. Like I'll set myself up and fight pirates, be an anti-pirate guy, and people will pay me for that. That kind of thing. I would imagine that sort of thing exists. And if he's not paid well enough, then he can turn pirate. You know? <laughs> become one of them. If you can't beat him, join him. Other way around, maybe. Maybe beats the pirates and gets him to join them and become anti-pirates. It's a whole... All these things have probably happened throughout the long history of Kohor. The rivers are huge and expansive. This is the Roinar, or the Roin we're talking about, after all, even if this is just one corner of it, the upper northeastern corner of the Roin. It's still all part of this giant river system, the largest in the world. So that's got to be relevant. Let's take our halfway break here. We are sponsorless at the moment, so I want to put out a call for you all to join us on either Patreon or Spotify as a subscriber. We're on Patreon right now. We're running a special. At the end of the month, at the end of May, we are doing away with the $2 level. If you are already on the $2 level, you get to keep it. So if you sign up now at the $2 level, you can be grandfathered in as the level disappears and still keep those benefits, still keep that level even when it's gone. So now's your chance. You've got a couple of weeks left. If you're hearing this after the end of April 2023, well, you can still sign up, not at the $2 level, but you can still sign up and we'd be much appreciative of that. And we will offer you things in return, such as bonus episodes. Other levels have access to scripts and things like shout outs. And we're... As we discussed last week, we're going to be adding some new features. Sean and Ashay and I are figuring out exactly how to deploy these things. But one thing, we're going to have like a game night, maybe like a trivia night kind of thing for people who are signed up. So all the more reason to get in now when it's as cheap as possible. And we would, like I said, be very grateful if you could support us there. We're going to replace the $2 level with $2,000. Inflation, y'all. It's really, it's a killer. (laughs) You should have said $3,000, Sean, because that's the title of our next section. The 3,000 of Kohor. Yes. (laughs) Another major side effect of the Doom was the emergence of the Dothraki. They first feasted on the Sarnori, as we saw. The Century of Blood saw the destruction of all the Sarnori cities by the Dothraki, minus that one that's still there that's only like 20,000 people. It's hardly even a city. The Dothraki cities are much closer, or rather, the Dothraki homeland is much closer to the Sarnori cities and the Mother of Mountains than any other civilization. And the Sarnori lacked the protection of the Forest of Kohor, which is not the hugest, most impenetrable forest. There are, you know, Danny and, and Droga, they just you know, walk right through it on some trails, presumably. So it wouldn't have been the biggest obstacle for a Dothraki Kalsar to follow. But it's something. It has at least put them a little farther out of the way. A large Kalsar under a man named Kal Temo, who was one of the biggest calls to emerge during the Century of Blood. Jorah claims this Kalsar was only half the size of Drogo's, but Drogo's Kalsar is monstrous. So this is still 50,000 people, because Drogo's was maybe 100,000. Kohor's defenders were insufficient. They had a lot of warning that this call Alasar was coming. 
presumably because it destroyed Asaria and Sarnath and these other places. And you can see the writing on the wall. They're like, okay, they're destroying all the cities closest to them. Pretty soon we're going to be the closest one left. We should prepare for this. So they hired swords, including they bought some Unsullied. And the Unsullied, of course, as you might be able to guess, even without looking at a map, Astapor is not exactly close to Kohor. Slaver's Bay is southern Essos. Kohor is northern Essos. And there's not like some river system they can really use to connect. The Roin the enter, you know, exits down on the other side of the blasted peninsula of Valyria. So these guys marched from Astapor to Kohor. That is a long, long march. That long march made them miss most of the action. By the time they got there, the Dothraki had already defeated the Kohoric defenders, and the sellsword companies had run away. Are you sure there wasn't a fray in charge of the Unsullied? <laughs> <laughs> well, they still fought, so maybe not. If this was not, this was not a smart fray, <laughs> if, if he was a fray. So, the, so Kohor was almost beaten. They were on their last legs, even with these Unsullied approaching. The Dothraki got cocky and took a bit of extra time just before they were to take the city itself. That single night, made all the difference. The Unsullied arrived and positioned themselves between the city and the Dothraki camps. This did little to curb Kaltemo's arrogance. In fact, it increased it, arguably. They could have easily flanked the Unsullied, as Jorah says, but it is important in Dothraki culture to show contempt to those who are riderless. Using strategy against lesser foes is as beneath them as the dirt on the ground that they are not trotting on, that the Unsullied are. Here's Jorah Sean <laughs> with the rest. The Dothraki charged and sullied, locked their shields, lowered their spears, and stood firm. Against 20,000 screamers with bells in their hair, they stood firm. 18 times the Dothraki charged and broke themselves on the shields and spears like waves on a rocky shore. Thrice, Timo sent his archers, wheeling past, and arrows felt like and arrows fell like rain upon the 3,000, but the Unsullied merely lifted their shields above their head until the squall had passed. In the end, only 600 of them remained, but more than 12,000 Dothraki lay dead upon that field, including Kaltemo, his blood riders, his Kos, and all his sons. In the morning of the fourth day, the new call led the survivors past the city gates in a stately procession. One by one, each man cut off his braid and threw it down before the feet of the 3,000. Since that day, the city guard of Kohor has been made up solely of unsullied, every one of whom carries a tall spear from which hangs a braid of human hair. Man, George is great with these anecdotes. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so the Sarnori didn't have that. The Sarnori, if they had, maybe they should have hired some unsullied. <laughs> Too late. Now, to keep in mind, part of the reason the Dothraki were so arrogant is they had already destroyed the Sarnori. So that was, you know, it was kind of a little from column A, a little from column B. Also, Jorah may have embellished. He probably did. After all, his purpose here was to get Danny to buy Unsullied. Turns out they are pretty badass. Like, they are pretty much as advertised. You can imagine that the Unsullied and Astapor and Kohor, they probably also all embellished this story. <laughs> Even the Dothraki would be motivated to embellish true, this story. true, since they <laughs> lost. You're, you're totally right. He even, Jorah, one thing he almost certainly embellishes is he says that the Unsullied were purchased almost as an afterthought. Like, 3,000 Unsullied, we know how expensive they are. We saw Danny <laughs> gave like all these trade goods and Drogon for 8,000 of them. So 
Yeah, that wasn't an afterthought. <laughs> he did say almost an afterthought. <laughs> and Kohor was 10 times wealthier than the other cities. That's, that might have been you know, a small point. cost to them. That's at the peak of their wealth. That's a great point. Okay, so they, they, they could have afforded an absurd amount. And they might have underestimated the Dothraki, overestimated the sellswords they already had. There could have been some, a lot of factors. Could have been some misestimations all over the place. Yes, lots of, lots of bad math on both sides here. The Dothraki mm-hmm. also have contempt for math. So do the, so the Unsullied. <laughs> they don't like counting. And influence-wise as well, this has shades, more Greek influence because of the 300 of Sparta. The hot gates, the stand at Thermopylae. Even the movie, which wasn't very accurate, well, that's an understatement, <laughs> used a line that is attributed to history, which is somewhat reflected here, the line about how many arrows there were. The Spartan commander Leonidas said in response to the archers of the Persians are so numerous that it will blot out the sun. And Leonidas was supposed to have said, then we'll have our battle in the shade. And this is kind of similar to the arrows fell like rain upon the 3,000, but they lifted their shields until the squall had passed. It's kind of making arrows into a weather thing, you know, whether it's the sun, the shade, or rain. And the fact that they just kept coming, but they just kept holding. The flanking as well. The, in, in the case of the 300 of Sparta, they couldn't be flanked because it was a pass until a traitor showed the, the way around, the, around pass the pass and, and then they yeah. attacked from the rear, which, of course, that, that's where the, the parallel ends because the Dothraki just gave up and said, all right, you guys win. And we cut off our braids and walk on past. Yeah. Now, the, the Persians lost not long after <laughs> getting through the, the hot gates, but that's another... You story. know, another parallel that... I guess also a tangent, but it is a frustration to me of the story of the 300, is it, especially the way the movie presents it, is they're, they're fighting off this invading slave culture so that they can go back home to their own slave. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were, they're painted as defenders of democracy, but Greek yeah. democracy was not really. Or the Spartans especially. Yeah, I mean, maybe not all of Greece. The Spartan but, didn't even have democracy, yeah. right? They had kings, two kings, which was yeah. kind of weird. The reason there were these tough Spartans is so that they could keep their slaves in yep. line. That was like... The- <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's very, very ahistorical in that sense. Yeah, they weren't really the good guys. <laughs> they were just guys, you know? <laughs> I guess, do we know if Cohor had slaves? We were kind of supposing oh, yeah, definitely. it. To, but- yeah, because they're, I mean, okay, they're Valyrian yeah, and that's who, yeah, and we know that slaves are sacrificed for blood magic and things like that there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so on some level, you want to like be proud of the people defending their home city against this invading horde who are going to enslave them. But this city also employed slaves to defend themselves so they could maintain their slave state. So I don't know who, if they're I'm necessarily proud of them for winning. But. So they still employ Unsullied to this day as city guards. So that's relevant mm-hmm. too. But as Jorah also points out, Unsullied who serve in small groups lose their edge. when They, they have to be a cohesive unit that holds their values and maintains their way of life to stay that strong and formidable. Unsullied that go on guard duty end up becoming just like all other guards. They kind of get lazy and overweight. And like you see the ones at at Illyrio's mansion, they they have very little to do. There's no real threats. They're not practicing as hard as they used to. They're not living out in the in the wilderness. They're not, yeah, they're not toughing it. Yeah. Which might be what's the state of the unsullied of cohort now, and certainly before, because of this next anecdote, which comes only about 80 years ago, so not super long ago. It involves the Golden Company. It's said in current times, a certain Carl Zecco visits cohort every three to four years, and cohort just buy him off. He comes back, they give him money, he leaves. 
much like how Drogo did at Pentos and how other calls do at other free cities or all the free cities depending. You'd think that they did this just because it was rational, right? Like, well, we can't beat that, so let's pay him to go away. That's really our only choice. But they may have also gotten cocky at one point, not towards the Dothraki, but towards the Golden Company. In a show of extreme foolishness, they tried to stiff them. They just didn't pay them. We don't know the exact circumstances. They just, or the reason, they just refused to pay for reasons. This was sometime between the 212 to 219 span. It said that it helped establish them. It helped put them on the map. So that's, which is why we know it came early in their existence. The gold company was formed in 212 and the third Blackfire Rebellion was in 219. So I'm guessing it was before the third Blackfire Rebellion. So the Kohorik thought they could get one over on this rookie sellsword company. These noobs, they could just stiff them and that, what could they do about it? But instead, it was pretty much the opposite is what happened. Instead of stiffing the Golden Company, the Golden Company put themselves on the map by showing what happens when you don't pay the Golden Company. <laughs> and they sacked Kohor. Turns out the Golden Company, as they like to stick to contracts. And that, that means both ends of the deal. <laughs> they also, they don't break a contract, but they also won't let you break a contract. That put them on the map. The Unsullied Guards, whatever they had at the time and these high walls they had was not sufficient to stop the Golden Company. I'm not sure they sacked the whole city because, I mean, Golden Company's 10,000 people, which is really big for a sellsword company, but I don't know if that's enough to carry away the entire city's wealth. Probably not. But a lot of wealth, they certainly, they probably carried away. Unless, I wonder if they were just like, we're going to take exactly what we're owed and that's it. But just to really make a point, you know, to set their reputation, I kind of feel like it'd be hard to control them in that regard, especially because they were so new and maybe that discipline hadn't fully set in. They hadn't established that. And also on the other side, Bittersteel was trying to fund a return to Westeros. So yeah. like, I don't know if he could pass that up as an opportunity to get as much loot as possible. It might be why they were able to start the third Blackfire Rebellion not that long after this they got so much money. They still wouldn't necessarily loot everything because a lot of things are hard to move, right? Yeah, like right. if they loot a bunch of like rare art and jewels, they are no longer warriors. They are now fences. You know what <laughs> I mean? They just have new jobs. Of, yeah. yeah like, <laughs> it's too awkward and difficult to carry that around and keep it safe and find a buyer. But you get the gold, you get the swords, you get food, you get horses, but yeah. you don't necessarily take all their like large, heavy, ornamental, tough to move items. True. Yeah. You're you're carving the you're pulling the gemstones out of the statue's eyes. You're not taking the whole statue. Yeah. I, I have to think they went straight for those Gohurk steelworks and took all those nice swords and armor, especially again, they're getting ready to invade Westeros and start the Blackfire Bell, third Blackfire Bell, and they're gonna have some nice swords for that, right? Bittersteel would be particularly interested in that since he did never got a Valyrian steel blade of his own while his two half-brothers did. And he'd be like, I want one. But no no evidence they found any Valyrian steel there. But maybe... maybe I was going to say, and it still didn't hear, apparently. Yeah. So that's too bad for them. I would think maybe they knew how to hide it. You know, people were like, oh, hide your... They couldn't have had that much. They probably hid what they had. So I have to think this may have been a particularly invasive sack because I think they would be looking for that. They may have even tortured people to try to find out where it was hidden or what, whatever. But again, there's a lot of guesswork here. Bittersteel was intent on establishing a reputation for his company. His reputation was, you know, our word is as good as gold, not we torture you to find your sword. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe this had come later, then their reputation was already established. But I don't know. I'm not sure what kind of leeway he thought he had or what he thought was the most important goals. And 
et cetera. He might also might not have wanted to create lifelong enemies either, right? Yeah. If he sacks them too hard, then they'll make a mission of coming back for That's him. That's true generations later or whatever. And he's like, look, I just need some money right now so I can get back to Western. He wouldn't want the other free cities to just not do business with him either, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. uh, That's relevant too. So there's a lot of considerations here and we're not really, we can't be too sure of what he prioritized versus other things. But still, you got to think it was a big part of the reason, a big boost in their ability to start the third Blackfire Rebellion, especially the, the forges, all that, all that armor and weapons. And to create and maintain their prestige as a sellsword company. Yeah, it, it absolutely established them. It's, it's probably the, the thing that first big news item about them, like the first thing that spread, uh, other than the fact that they maybe existed in the first place. So it's, this place is called the City of Sorcerers. Let's talk about why. It's not entirely clear other than the Valyrian Steel stuff, but let's get started here with a quote. In folklore, even as far as Westeros, Kohor is sometimes known as the city of sorcerers, for it is widely believed the dark arts are practiced here even to this day. Divination, blood magic, and necromancy are whispered of, though such reports can seldom be proved. One truth remains undisputed, however. The dark god of Kohor, the deity known as the Black Goat, demands daily blood sacrifice. Notice how it says divination, blood, magic, necromancy are whispered of, though such reports can seldom be proved, which implies that they have sometimes been proved, like mm-hmm. rarely, but not never. So that right there is, I mean, a little bit is a lot <laughs> when you're talking about divination, necromancy, and blood magic. And how connected are these things? Again, I asked the question again, we didn't really get too deep into it. How connected is the religion and worship of the black goat with actual magic? Like how much is the sorcery, do they attribute to the black goat? Now we have discussed many times that the actual origin of magic is disputable and maybe just there's different ways to tap into it and human beings put the face of the deity on that source, whatever, even if they don't know what the source truly is. So fitting this into that works really well. They, the face they put on it is the black goat. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's an imagery they saw in their visions or something like that, or some particular person saw in his visions or her visions when the religion was just new. Some prophet of the black goat that got it all started. Other people over time followed that person and it grew over time. I mean, every religion has to start somewhere. Every strange worship of some bizarre animalistic creation has to start somewhere. So apparently in Valyria is where it started or at least flourished before moving to Cohor to have its own spot. So is necromancy a part of the black goat's worship? Is blood magic? Is divination? Blood magic seems the most likely given the sacrifice. Sacrifices are associated with blood magic very clearly, and they believe it's got an actual purpose here. Sacrifice is demanded by their deity or else or else what isn't entirely clear, but it's not good. Like you said, Sean, once they get started, they don't want to find out what happens. And to them, it's just, oh, we're, we're sacrificing some criminals, some animals. Like, it's not that big a cost in their minds. And you know, to us, it's like creepy and weird. And But to them, it's just, you know, I wonder how, just how customary it is. Like, if you grow up there, does it just seem really normal? Or even like to people who are citizens, is like, man, this... Even to me, a local, this seems, <laughs> you know, how much ability to like look at themselves do they have here? <laughs> you know, 
It is on the extreme end, but people do a lot of things in the name of religion or even tradition in general. And it's not just totally made up for this world. I want to use the word Aztec, but I think that's like a little inaccurate because Aztec was like an outsider word used to yeah, incorporate a, a bunch of different Mexica cultures. Is the right, Mexica, yeah. yeah. Is the right word. Um, but they were, which is basically what is now Mexico City, but they were doing human sacrifice on a pretty massive scale. Yes. And, and their religious belief was that they had to do it, that it was like imperative for the world to continue. Yeah, like the, the sun won't rise yeah. if we don't do this, you know? And so even that's maybe like a weird thought or a weird belief, but once you do believe that, if you really do believe that, you really better sacrifice somebody. Yeah, you know? that's like, way less evil than letting the world end, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. You put yourself in that mind state. I say to mine, like, yeah, this is it's evil. It might seem evil to sacrifice people, but it's the lesser of two evils. Way lesser, right? Like in a in a in a way, like everyone would die. Everyone you know would care about whether this this person you're sacrificing included. <laughs> so they're dead yeah. either way. And by the way, they look at it. This person, you know, kind of like what what Cregan Stark said. Last week when he's like, well, those those men were dead the minute they marched, you know, <laughs> the minute they marched south, they were already dead. Like, oh, they're not actually dead, but they're going to die either way is kind of his point. Whether it's to the, the revenge of the God or to be sacrificed to placate the God one way or another, it's, it's happening. It is hard to sort of wrap your head around human sacrifice or animal sacrifice being so normal that it's a daily like feature of the city, not just something that people do in their homes on a daily basis, because there's all sorts of weird things that people do, like even in our neighborhood here, that who knows what they're <laughs> doing. Um, yeah, there's people with chickens and goats in this neighborhood. I don't think they're sacrificing them, but there were goat heads found in a stream like a couple years ago here. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were. There was, there was the big theory about sacrifices, and then some people got up in arms because they're like, no, we wouldn't just like get rid of the goat head. Like, that's not, like, that is disrespectful. We wouldn't do that. So there was, like, a lot of debate about whether it was really religious sacrifice because religious sacrifice wouldn't treat the goat head so disrespectfully. And- do you even sacrifice, bro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so people are weird. Yeah, let's, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, The jury's out for me on whether those goat heads were religious sacrifices or just some weirdos, is my point. Yeah. Either way, the fact that it was goats is almost certainly relates to that thing I said earlier because of the like the Christian propaganda against uh, trying to attribute associate it with Satanism like centuries ago that still persists now. I think it's all just a big miscommunication. You're supposed to be sacrificing black oats, <laughs> not goats. <laughs> Let's talk about the Valyrian steel thing here. Did the Valyrians take note of the penchant? for sacrifice amongst worshipers of the black goat and say, hmm, this would fit in pretty well. This is a good home for this industry. Probably not because the industry of Valyrian steel reworking seems to have started after the doom, but maybe that's why it ended up in Cohort. Was there anyone, was there an, an effort to save the knowledge of Valyrian steel? If so, it seems peculiar or not peculiar, but interesting that it ended up in the place that's most equipped to handle it, a place that's already willing to do blood sacrifice on a daily scale and regularly, and is also already an expert at making swords. So you kind of feel like, is it, a, it's like a chicken and egg thing. Like did the, did their expertise in metalworking come first? And that's why they're the inheritors of Valyrian steel or the other way around being the inheritors of Valyrian steel is where they got their expertise. 
I kind of think the first, because it sounds like they've been famed for their sword making since before the Doom. So they may not have, and I don't, we don't think that they were making Valyrian steel before the Doom. We think that's, it's only in Valyria. And then it's spread after. With that in mind, if we operate on that as the more likely of the two scenarios, then probably the secret was taken to them. Someone brought it there, or several someones, knowing this would be the best place for it. And perhaps knowing, not just like, oh, I must preserve the secret. The world needs it. No, it's just, it's valuable. (laughs) They want to like carry the secret because it can make them a lot of money. That seems more likely. Like, oh, the secret can't be be a shame if this secret was lost forever. I don't know if that's it. It could be that, but I'm guessing profit motive was more likely. Maybe slightly less cynical, though still very cynical. They they may also not want it to fall into the wrong hands. Like, Mm. they know it requires a sacrifice. And like, Mm. on some level, maybe they have some reverence for this sacrifice that they wouldn't trust other people to have. That other people might just do this for profit motive, but we're doing it for the art of it or for our religion or et cetera. Something that is not a, a reason that wouldn't hold up under scrutiny, but they tell themselves this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like it's something that they convinced themselves with. That makes sense. I totally see that. Here's a quote that refers to their quality and gets us into this topic a little more. Cohoric swords, knives, and armor are superior to even the best castle-forged steel of Westeros, and the city smiths have perfected the art of infusing deep color into the metals of their work, producing armor and weaponry of lasting beauty. Only here, in all the world, has the art of reworking Valyrian steel been preserved, its secrets jealously guarded. Lots of places claim to have the best forages, but Kohor seems to have them actually all beat. Seems to be the evidence says that they are actually number one. Nina agrees with the my suspicion that they became the inheritors of Valyrian steel because they already had the skill, that it seems to be that that seems to have been in place first. The actually quality of metal, they were actually good at it before the magic became a factor. But what about this other, a little more about the recipe stuff was any other magic brought with it? Is that maybe the origin of some of the other magical practices there and some of the other sorceress practices that escaped the doom, like blood, like other forms of blood magic? We know the blood magicians were very powerful there, but they weren't all located in Valyria. There must have been some enclaves elsewhere, and some of those would have had connections with the Valyrians. In fact, they may have been communicating directly using things like glass candles, so it may not have been like a carrying message back and forth kind of thing. Again, these visions, these abilities to look into the future and past and see dreams and visions could be the origin of the black goat's physical form as as it manifests to humans. Uh, Someone may have seen it in a vision and been like, I keep seeing this black goat in my mind. It must be the, this is the deity speaking to me, even though it just ends up being a different aspect of death to most everyone else. So that all kind of fits pretty well together in terms of how it settles into various societies and individuals. It does seem to be true that the secret of Valyrian steel was confined to Valyria in the first place. That's something that I kind of skipped over, but I wanted to clarify that because if, it, if that wasn't the case, then it'd be a lot easier to see how Kohor got the secret before the Doom. Because otherwise you're saying, well, how did you know the Doom happen so fast? It's not like someone could have just, oh, here comes the Doom. I've got the ticking time bomb. If I can get, on, get out of here quick enough, I'll carry the secret with me. No, it was just sudden and unpredicted at all. Like people were completely caught off guard by it. So no one could have in advance 
run away with this, I don't think, besides, you know, someone like Danny the Dreamer, who did see it coming. And as we've speculated many times, it's very unlikely Danny the Dreamer was the only person who foresaw the doom, given what a huge event it was and given how many people seemingly have access to various forms of divination and prophecy. So maybe, just maybe, some lesser magician-type person saw this coming, convinced some other people, was able to prove to them that that the doom was coming, and they left Valyria and carried some secrets with them. In part, one of the reasons they knew they could get away with it was they knew that the people who would want to come after them for those secrets would soon all be blown away (laughs) by the doom. So they were like, we could get away with this because they're all going to die. Yeah. And again, that brings us back to Emperor Orion and maybe some of his manipulations or maybe he, seeing Valyria destroyed, he knew that, well, someone in his court, one of his followers, one of his top artisans, someone sworn to him was one of the people that knew how to make Valyrian steel and that guy maybe stayed behind in Kohor while Emperor Orion went off to subjugate the the subcontinent and when Orion didn't return, that guy's like, Guess it's time to set up shop here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the ingredients were already there. Some of the groundwork was already there. It's pretty cool. There are lots of possibilities here. We can't get like all the way there, but you can really see how the elements add up to this happening. The closest modern tale we have here is on a guy named Maester Pole. Now, we don't know when this happened, but it's probably fairly recent. And he tried to fish out the secret a few times and got punished a few times. Here's the quote. Maester Pohl's treatise on cohoric metalworking, written during several years of residence in the free city, reveals just how jealously the secrets are guarded. He was thrice publicly whipped and cast out from the city for making too many inquiries. The final time, his hand was also removed following the allegation that he stole a Valyrian steel blade. According to Paul, the true reason for his final exile was his discovery of blood sacrifices, including the killing of slaves as young as infants, which the Cahoric Smiths used in their efforts to produce a steel to equal that of the freehold. So, Sean, you had a good question here. You notice that they need to do sacrifice not to make it, but just to remix it. So that caused you to think of a make a connection there, didn't it? With ice, yes, right, ice, yes, because he reforged the, ice, and well, for all we, and that was right around the same time period that the Roberts bastards were killed, right? Not exactly. I need to point out that comes a little bit later. That's a li- it comes a little bit later. It's it's Barra was killed by the time of Tyrion and Clash of Kings, and Tyrion two Clash of Kings, and Gendry. They were already hunting for Gendry by that point because he he ran away at the end of a Game of Thrones. Tyrion doesn't give the... Tywin doesn't have ice melted down until the end of A Clash of Kings. So, like, all these kids are killed well before that. Mm. And they're not killed in any sort of sacrificial way. They're killed by Cersei's people. Yeah. To be clear, I didn't think that necessarily Tywin or or whoever killed the bastards in order to have... Oh, that it just... ...child's blood for... But it might have been a happy coincidence. Happy. Yeah, real happy. the timing... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but even if it wasn't uh, Robert's bastards, yeah, I I don't think Tywin would have batted an eye if he told Tobomot, "Hey, I want you to reforge ice into two more swords." 
And Tobamon's like, well, I need the blood of a child. Tom was like, okay, how many children? Yeah. You know, like, I don't <laughs> like, think he's like, oh, need? never mind. Do they need yeah. to look a certain way? What hair color, eye yeah. color, anything you need? I got you, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't care about that, Tywin says. Yeah, I agree with you. Tywin would not scruple. Yeah. And I, I don't, maybe just another factor to consider that doesn't necessarily prove anything, but didn't those blades have a red tint to them? They like, did. And he you know, was like, other confused. Valerian blades. Don't necessarily have red tents, and even if blood magic was used, but maybe this is reforging. Other maybe Valerian blades aren't reforged, or maybe Tobamot's not as good, or he got teenagers' blood instead of baby's <laughs> blood. You know, like I could just think of all kinds of reasons why maybe it's a little different. But I still can't help but have these different pieces come together to feel like George is hinting at least at the idea. Yeah, it is it is peculiar here. because he okay, so let's let's review what actually happens. He brings the swords to Tywin and he's like, "I'm sorry, I can't get them the Lannister red that you want. Every time I do it, it just gets darker." And he's like, "These Valyrian this Valyrian steel, it's kind of got, you know, a will of its own, this dark sorcery kind of he's like I he he refers to spells that he uses to make the color, which is probably just something he calls it to make it sound you know, he might even think it's a spell. They don't understand the nature of chemistry and how molecules interact. And point. Stuff, yeah, but, he may yeah. not be lying. He may just think that it is a spell. Like for him, it basically is a spell. That's a great point. Either way, Tywin's happy with it. He's like, oh yeah, this is, don't worry about it, man. This looks great. <laughs> Which is a rare, <laughs> a rare show of magnanimity from Tywin. Magnanimity? From Tywin. Actually, like he's actually like happy. <laughs> you know, for a second. He like almost smiles. <laughs> But some, there's a lot of odd things about this anecdote, aren't there, Sean? Besides the that thing that you pointed out, there's also this, it's like, all they did was cut his hand off for stealing Valyrian steel, all, and they, he discovered blood sacrifices and all, the, and, and all they did was exile him? Like, that does imply that it's a, you know, he didn't actually get the secret. They're like, they're, they're confident he doesn't under, understand it or else they would, they would want to kill him to keep him from spreading it. They're like, oh, that dude doesn't actually know secret or we would have to kill him. It's also interesting, I think, that even if he doesn't know the full secret, the fact that he's trying so hard and has been warned not to, and at least ostensibly stole a blade, it still seems like that's enough to kill him. Yeah. Like, why did they not kill him? I, I, I wonder if it's better for him, better for them to leave him alive. Maybe it, it implies there's less to steal, or maybe it implies maybe he's got some things wrong and they're happy to let him spread misinformation. Mm, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, he's saying, he's telling people all these wrong things. Just let him, like this, like this thing is probably wrong. Like it does, like Tabo Mott probably didn't kill a child to reforge ice. And, and there's a really good reason why. Like for, he protected Gendry. So like this guy just isn't, and he, like even when Ned was quizzing him, Ned decides he likes Tabo Mott because of the way he protected Gendry really does not scream child sacrifice at all. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. this is there's a strong piece of evidence against it. Maester Paul's probably wrong about this. There's probably not. Maybe they do it, but it isn't necessary. There might be some cohorts missed that sacrifice a kid for good luck. <laughs> Just, to, you know, yeah. <laughs> better to sacrifice one than not. Right? Just in case. But Tabo Mott's like, nah, you don't need to do that. And he's not in cohort, so he doesn't have to yeah. Go through the hoops. follow some tradition. Yeah. That he know he knows better, and being separated from cohort, maybe he's learned a lot in his own experiment, his own experimenting. Exactly. So it seems like there's some wiggle room here for Maester Pole. The reason they let him go is he didn't really discover the truth. They're like, this guy is annoying. Cut his hand off and kick him out, <laughs> but he's not a real problem. Maybe because, like a lot of Maesters, he's 
not fully accepting of magic in as an element to this. And so that part gets downplayed, but that seems unlikely because like what fool could think there's no magic involved in Valyrian steel? Like it has to be magic. Like it doesn't lose its edge, right? Like I guess he could maybe think that's a, a work of man. It's hard to get your get in the mind of when you really get into the minutiae of what people in this setting would see as magic and not magic. Analog. <laughs> Analog reality. I don't know. So it also maybe tells us that they just haven't rediscovered the secret. They're still trying to figure it out themselves. They're like, yeah, that's, that's the reason he can't steal the secret is they don't even have it themselves. All they know is the remix and not the reforged. But it does imply they're still trying. They're still trying, hunting the old methods and one day perhaps they'll stumble on it again. It also implies that he wasn't just after the secrets of Valyrian Steel. It says Maester Pohl's treatise on cohoric metalworking, not just Valyrian Steel. It's cohoric metalwork. So he was also trying to figure out how, why their swords and armor are better than Westerosi stuff. So his, his interest wasn't entirely Valyrian steel here. That's a really important aspect to make sure people understand because whenever this anecdote comes up, it sounds like that was his main interest was Valyrian steel. No, he was just trying to study all the steel and Valyrian steel is just the most interesting one, I suppose. The most peculiar, bizarre, the most misunderstood. But moving on to the other forms of magic or returning to them anyway, yeah, Valyrian steel and blood magic, you can see how that's related. Especially if you take it back even farther and get into the tales of like Nissa Nissa, a forging of Lightbringer, which sounds like there was blood magic there. You got someone jamming a sword in someone's heart to make the sword work. And before that, you tried the heart of a lion. That's pretty blood magic-y. Dawn, similar qualities to it, but pale white instead of, you know, dark which maybe implies there was no sacrifice used to create it. It's wholesome, <laughs> like Valyrian steel. But still, it's peculiar because it has this same lightness and sharpness and permanence to it that otherwise is the same as Valyrian steel, but clearly looks different and, and unlike any other blade. So that also implies magic, but a different form of magic, yet similar, considering the result is so similar. Yeah, and nefarious magical purposes outside of blood magic. We talked about the supply of different types of animals that might be relevant, like certain animals produce different results in blood magic. I don't know how this stuff works. You know, toad at, you know, the heart of wings of a bat, eye of newt, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? You've got boars and elks and stuff in the forest of Kohor. you got different magical ingredients. I don't know, mushrooms. I think I mentioned the mushrooms already, but that's got to be a thing. There's got to be a lot of mushrooms in Kohor. And mushrooms and religion and magic go together because people get into trances. And maybe it was mushrooms that led to someone to perceiving the black goat the first time. <laughs> maybe that's how H.P. Lovecraft perceived it. <laughs> divination, though, in general, there's lots of forms of divination. I wonder what their artisanal crafts. I wonder if they've ever made glass candles there. Or if that was purely a Valyrian-only thing. Because we're pretty far from the volcanoes. And now, you know, it's frozen fire. On one hand, they're so good with forges and flame in general and the controlling of fire. On the other hand, that magic source may require the volcanoes as like a hinge of the power. I don't know. Still pretty cool. Necromancy. What about that? I could kind of see it working better there than in other places because it's colder. So decomposition would, would take longer. And when you're working with dead bodies, decomposition seems like that's a relevant thing to have to deal with. <laughs> I 
Don't you know anything about necromancy disease? No. The more decomposition, the better. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I want more decomposition. Okay. So say I take it all back. This is a terrible place for necromancy. It, I don't know. It, you don't want possible? them to be barely necro. We want them to be fully necro. <laughs> I was going to say, is it possible this is just all about the necks of crows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like neck. Necromancy. Why is it all mancy? <laughs> is there any necro woman scene? <laughs> yeah. Definitely a lot of possibilities. Not a lot to like really get our hands deep into. So tell us what you think. What other sorts of magic you think might be going on in Kohor? Any thoughts you all have? We'd, be, we'd love to hear it. We'll maybe shout them out in a future episode. Lots of room for theorizing. So have at it, y'all. Our last section for today is people and characters. Given the suggestion of the Sarnori, Cities being destroyed one by one by the Dothraki. Nina suggests that there were refugees. Not all the Sarnori were arrogant enough to stay there and expect to win. Some of them were like, some of you guys think we can win, but like they're four for four on destroying our cities so far. I'm going to leave. Yes, some people probably left. Unlike Lys, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum, which has a lot of Lyrian blood because it's like the Dragon Lord's playground where they father bastards and you know uh, uh, all the time and live there a lot. Kohor doesn't sound like there is nearly as much Valyrian blood in place there, so it would be more of in terms of ethnic makeup. You might have more Sornari bloodlines, maybe just other people from like Lorath and maybe old Andals, things like that. Not entirely clear, but it, there's a decent chance it's got a a bit more of a melting pot feel to it than you might think for one of the free cities. It's certainly not going to be like Bravos, which is the ultimate melting pot of, of the world, as far as we know. Cohort might actually be more diverse than one would think. It's not a port, so it's still kind of limited in terms of like truly being a worldly cosmopolitan city. And you know, it can't be cosmopolitan when your deity is the black goat. But hey, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's probably more so than you would think given those factors. Who else has been there? Danny, Viserys, of course, Jorah and Drogo, the Golden Company. Varus, like we said, probably has been there. There's probably a lot of others who had a sojourn there. We might hear of it later. Someone might think of it having been there. I'm like, oh, that person's been to Kohor. I didn't realize that. Melisandre, maybe has been there. Makoro, who knows? Someone who's older that's been around a while. And as Melisandre's apparently quite old. And someone who's that old has had time to get around. I think Euron's been there. Interesting. Well, it's not easily accessible by ship, so that kind of might take it off the list. But if he's searching for like forms of magic he could use to bring back and you know utilize in his quest, then maybe, yeah, maybe Oberon. Ooh, yeah, that's possible. He's definitely been overseas. He definitely fought in the free companies, and the free company he's fought in maybe went to Kohor, and the one he founded maybe took contract there. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible. That's a very good call. I like that one. One that we know for sure is Strong Belwas. Strong Belwas was sold from Marine to Kohor, which might mean he there's pit fights there, but I don't think so. I don't. We don't hear of anything like that. So I think he was just sold there to be a guard. I think he was done pit fighting, which is why he was sold from Marine, and then Illyrio bought him from Kohor. Not sure why he picked him specifically. Kind of interesting, maybe because he had been from Astapor and that's, and Illyria wanted someone from Astapor or had been out that part of the world to be at Danny's side. Makes sense. Someone who's. I think he picked him because he was strong. Ah, 
That too. That too. <laughs> yes. And he is. He is. <laughs> Not a bad choice by Illyrium. So he, and he, yeah, he's a good guard. You know, when you say that whole hired knives, I've never seen one of the hired knives. Well, Strong Bellwas was right there for some protection. Of course, it came in the form of poison locusts, but bodyguards got a bodyguard. One, whatever, whatever <laughs> it takes, y'all. <laughs> the Street of Steel in King's Landing is where most of the metal workers in the city have their shops. And there's a, like a hierarchy here. The closer you are to Visenya's Hill, the fancier the shop, especially as the shops are going up the hill where it's like visible, a visible hierarchy as it leads towards the Sept of Baylor, right? The highest up shop, the tippy top, is Tabho Mott, guardian of Gendry, liked by Ned. We talked about the reforging of ice and the, the child stuff, but he says he's the only one in the city who knows how to color, do the metal coloring thing, which makes you think, Man, if you're a cohort and you know how to do these things, yeah, set up shop somewhere else. You'll be the best in town and you'll, you'll make bank because it looks like Tabo Mont's doing quite well for himself. He owns a shop and has a big house. It's like a multi-story house on Visenya's Hill. And he's, you know, Westeros isn't the kindest to foreigners. I wouldn't call it xenophobic, but this guy is a foreigner and he's become wealthy there. You know, he kind of made his way in another city. So that's, you know, it's pretty cool. Isn't he also the one that made the green armor? Was that... Yeah. Was that he made Renly's armor? No, he, had that re- he didn't make Renly's armor. Renly's armor was painted. He specifically... Renly came to him, but didn't actually buy from him, I think, if I'm right. Oh, yeah. I think, I think yeah, that's I think right. I could be wrong. It could be Renly. He might have done Renly's armor, but I think not. He actually says he's the best in the Seven Kingdoms. And it's one of those times where he might actually not be bragging. That might be true. <laughs> he might actually be right. <laughs> The biggest city in the whole kingdom, an armor from the city that produces the... Yeah, I can believe it. He's, <laughs> it's, it might actually be true. Too bad for Gendry. He was in a really good spot. He would have learned from... He was learning from him. And he did get... You know, he learned enough to learn how to forge a helm and enough to work for the Brother Without Banners. But that's kind of cool, right? The Brother Without Banners, their blacksmith was taught by a Kohoric. So they might have... Better steel than most outlaw bands would have, <laughs> even though he wasn't, he didn't fully, he didn't even complete his apprenticeship. But, you know, Tabo Mott said the boy had promise and refused to out his true identity. I just wanted to make a joke that somewhere down the line, someone's got to come along and call themselves better steel. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, someone that Ned would not like is Vargo Hote, the paragon of ethics that he is. He actually uses the Black Goat as his banner while leading the Brave Companions, though it's probably not the banner of the Brave Companions historically, because we're told that it hasn't always been led by a cohort. They're not a cohort free company, even though their leader is currently one. But remember when we brought up the, the Sarnori refugees, and people that may have fled Sarnor in advance of the Dothraki and settled in Kohor, well, Vargo Hote is unusually tall. And the Sarnori were the tall men. Well, maybe there's a chance that he has mm-hmm. Sarnori ancestry. They, the Sarnori would not like to claim him as one of their own, I'm sure. But, but hey, they, they, they aren't around to complain. Now, Vargo was also known as the goat, or the goat of Heron Hall. And he had a goatee, though that term does not <laughs> exist in Westeros. They do not call it a goatee. They just call it chin beard. <laughs> I looked, I was like, no goatee. But then I looked up chin beard and that, that comes up several times. 
Ready to get you a goat tea. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other, of course, one of the other holders of a chin beard is a little thing. <laughs> who is similar ethics to Vargo Hote. <laughs> I don't know that Littlefinger will have the ending of Vargo Hote, who had one of the worst endings of all. I'm, slowly dismembered and I'm, by uh, Gregor. And I would point out that, the, that that type of facial hair is often associated with the devil, just like the goat. Oh, yeah. Yes. You know? Right? So, like, I mean, who, else, who has not seen art of, like, Satan, of the devil, with, like, a little chin beard, a little goatee? Thing? That's true. That's true. It's never a full beard for him. <laughs> Jamie had Jasmine Peckledon throw Vargo's hoat, Vargo's hoat, Vargo's head, <laughs> his coat, Vargo Hoat's coat, made of goat. <laughs> uh, I think we have the makings of a really fun limerick here. Yes. In the boat, Vargo Hoat's yeah. coat was <laughs> made of goat. Floating on the moat. Okay, we'll come back next week with a little rhyme about Vargo Hoat. That we wrote. <laughs> that we wrote, yeah. I love that. Okay, we're... But now we're cooking with not gas, but goat fat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Jaws, he had Jamie had Jasmine Peckleton throw Vargo Hote's head into the god's eye. So there's a black goat skull down in the depths, maybe maybe near uh, some some other famous bones down there. <laughs> uh, among his many ethnicities, so we're not. 100% sure he's being honest here. This guy, not the most honest man. Brown Ben Plum claims he's got some cohort through his grandmother. He also claims he's Ibanese, and the Ibanese can't, aren't supposed to be able to mate with humans. They mate so. a little. The Ibanese mate a little with humans. It's just they don't mate. Like, well, well, it's that like men, women, like it, it, we're only certain. It's the whole like giants and humans mating. Yeah, like, that's true. You, you, like maybe an Ebony's man can't mm. mate with a human woman, but an Ebony's woman can mate with a human man. Mm. That kind of thing. So yeah. I do think that's very possible. Okay. Anyways, no brown Ben plum slander. <laughs> can an Ebony's woman mate with a plum? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's our final quote of the day. It's an interesting footnote. Because that's another part for a rhyme. Oh, yeah. A quote. A footnote. Quote, a footnote. Mm. Oh, we're, we're, it's going to be great. Limerick. <laughs> for Cohor to consider as far as their future goes, here it is. To believe that the stand of the 3,000 of Cohor put an end to Dothraki dreams of conquest, however, suggests a complacency akin to that of the High King of Sarnor's when the horse lords first came boiling out of the east. Wiser men know it is only a matter of time until the Kalasars unite again under some great call and turn west once more in search of new conquests. Some great call, eh? Hmm. Perhaps the stallion who mounts the world, maybe? If the Dothraki want to go west again, Kohor would be the first city on their, you know, map there since they were stopped by the 3,000. that It was next and then they got stopped. So if they were to start up again, that's where they would go. I'm not so sure Danny would go to Kohor, but she might, well, she might, and she might send like a detachment there to get them to kneel or to work out a deal or to threaten them. And it would not be good for them. They don't want to deal with the Dothraki. They don't want to have that fight. They might pay them off. They might give what's needed. They might, yeah. Certainly is interesting to consider too because then they have unsullied guards there and Danny is like 
mother of the unsullied, in a sense, at least those ones that follow her. And maybe those ones could maybe be part of convincing them to be like, stand down. Of course, the unsullied are particularly loyal. On the other hand, on the other, other hand, these are the same unsullied that are just on board guard duty all day long and maybe aren't what they used to be. Their training has fallen off. It's been years since they've been trained and, you know, nothing was reinforcing that. They're not being beaten to stay in line anymore. That might also be the thing that she would go there for or send someone there for is to release the slaves. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to pay me tribute. I'm not going to sack your city, but you have to release your slaves. No more. And Ansolid would be slaves themselves and might be, hey, that's, we agree. Basically, us. Yeah. any place that's killing children slaves or has children slaves or any slaves, but especially child slaves, would be on Danny's blacklist. The black goats on her blacklist. Yeah, she would want <laughs> <blacklist>. to either, de- <laughs> she would want to deal with it one way or another. Right. It makes a lot of sense that you would just go right back to Marine first and maybe stop off in Volantis on the way, maybe Lise and Mir and Tyrosh, and they're actually on the way. Cohort's not on the way, but she could make it on the way for part of her army. If if she really unites the entire Dothraki race into one horde, she could send a hordelet <laughs> off to the <laughs> to go west, led by someone she trusts. You know, like Sendario. Yeah, or one of her blood riders, send Rakaro, you know, like yeah. someone she really trusts, you know, like, I mean, she kind of trusts Dario, but her blood rider just sworn to her and they are like ultra loyal. So it, send some Unsullied with them too, you know, like, I don't know. There's, as much there's, as I there's love the idea, here. I don't know if George is going to fit that into the story. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's expansive enough. It's the wrong direction. It would be off page. That's why I think if it does happen, it won't be Danny going there herself. Yeah. Soon we hear that she sends men to do this and they submit and we just, it's like a couple paragraphs. So like they do, we do have room for a couple paragraphs. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I agree. We don't, we're probably not going to go there directly, at least not in Danny's POV. You never know with someone else, although I, I can't guess anyone. I can't think of anyone who seems likely. But hey, it's a great city. It's interesting. There's a lot of stories that could be told there just because it doesn't happen in A Song of Ice and Fire. This fandom's wide open. We got to imagine bigger than what's coming in the rest of the books. We know they're going to do more shows, more other things here and there. Who knows what the future Maybe. will hold? And Cohort has got to be part of that future, I think. Maybe Dunk goes there. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, Dunk and Egg going to Kohor. Uh, I mean, I could see why they would go to the Disputed Lands and those areas because of like the Golden Company and all that stuff. But yeah, why not? It's also not a really good reason. It's pretty far away. I don't think it's likely, but I just want Dunk to go everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any excuse for more Dunk stories. <laughs> so it sounds like a few people got the trivia question right. The question again was, who else was called a black goat? The full explanation of this was Hoster Tully calling the blackfish the black goat of the Tully flock. And, and he goes, yeah, but Tullys are fish, so I'm the black fish. And that's where his nickname came from. So someone named Littlefinger guessed first. Littlefinger, you already knew that, Littlefinger. <laughs> then Megan Wolf and Ranabir Mitra. Good job, y'all. Another trivia question next week for you to test your A Song of Ice and Fire knowledge with. It'll be Celtigar. How Celtigar won the vote beating out House Tarth. The Arbor and Estermont, the I Turtle like, Island. I kind of want to do a poll next week and ask people how they say it: Celtigar or Celticar. Oh yeah, yeah say, we'll yeah, find yeah. out in live. It probably is the same as how people say Celtic or Celtic, right? Yeah, <laughs> probably very similar. Probably similar. I would. I'd be curious if it's if people are the same. Yes. Yeah, we could do a little poll on that and see what people say, and then we'll we'll, we'll report if we were if we remember. We'll include that in the episode next week. Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned a lot of episodes or topics that refer to other episodes we've done. The Century of Blood, 
The Lost Valyrian Steel with Tommy Pappas. Blood Magic, which would be the most recent of these. The Gossos, which is a bonus episode available to patrons. Go to patreon.com, History of Westeros, or sign up through Spotify and you get the episode that way. The Kingdom of Sarnor episode, one of our Valar readers for the World of Ice and Fire episodes. We got had a lot of fun with that. More Lovecraft influence there as well, by the way. Lovecraft influence. It's like the Lovecraft influence part of the world. <laughs> Up in the northwestern corner there. So thanks, y'all. Those of you who are already patrons or Spotify subscribers, or those of you who donate through our website, there is a third option there. You can just send a, a one-time donation. Thanks to Nina for her great notes. The idea of the Sarnori refugees, for example, moving to Coho was her idea, among many other things. But I particularly like that call, so I'll shout it out again. Also, Joey, Jesse, and Brand. Thanks to y'all for the music, the intros, and outros. And Michael Clarfeld, of course, who's got his hand in intro, outros, as well as these awesome maps you see behind us. I ref- refer to his maps all the time, especially at these world-building episodes, and I'm trying to like look up what the geography is and remember what's nearby, what their trade partners probably are or were. So this map in particular is awesome because it has all the ruins of the Thraki cities with its you know, original, with the Thraki names written on there and all that. It's really good. Oh, we got a nice little poem from Juliet to send us off, too. Okay. I like it. it a lot. Vargo Hope cooked a goat and flavored it with rye. Those who ate Vargo's goat were caused to die. I cooked Hope's goat but didn't add the rye. I'll be blamed. I'm not famed and have been known to lie. It's real fun. Love <laughs> it, Juliet. Bravo. That's awesome. Good job. Applause Juliet. for you. Yeah, my, the trivia question was almost who ate the flesh of Vargo Hope. I, yeah, I was working on one myself. Like, while I even listened to you, I was like, I wanted to write. I was like, a quote I wrote about that renowned goat, Fargo Hope. Not just a footnote. Never just wrote. To him, I must promote and dote and gloat. And that's where I oh, left nice. I have a lot I would like to Well, you to got add. all that in like eight minutes. That's really yeah. good. <laughs> I'm, I'm inspired. He's perfect limerick material. But yeah. Anyways, hopefully we'll remember and we'll, we'll have more hopes rhymes. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll go to the dictionary and find everything that rhymes and just work from there and include them all. Yeah. <laughs> With that, all the more reason to do a reread because you'll find more examples and more inspiration. So I say what I always say as we bid you adieu. Valar, rereads. 